Welcome to the Music City Scene, a podcast for independent musicians and independent listeners. A podcast brought to you from the Music City, Nashville, Tennessee, bringing you interviews with independent musicians to tell the stories behind their music, their craft, tips on where and how to hear these independent musicians, as well as giving you the insight on places that are off the beaten path to go and things to do when you are in the Music City. Here are your hosts, Darren and Tony. Hi, and welcome to Music City Scene. This is your host, Darren and Tony. Music City Scene is a podcast about artists who are, some are flying under the radar, some are singer-songwriters, some are bands that person coming to Nashville or the person living in Nashville may or may not know about. And so we're going to kind of expose them, give them a little wider audience and talk about their history. Most people in Nashville are not from here. So we're going to talk about how they, their journey to Nashville, how they got here. Uh, maybe some places I like to go hang out at, some bands they like to go see, some venues they like to go to, some things they like to eat. So it's going to be kind of an all-encompassing, this is Nashville, this is away from the places everybody knows about this is independent of the popular stuff i guess the less independent stuff and i'm just making it the, just the independent there. listening room <laughs> the independent listening room. i think we just like music and we like different kinds of music you don't think that's qualifying no i think that is qualifying but we yeah. don't have a uh, somebody else to do this on the fact that we just like music absolutely you know, I think as we move forward in the show, we have some personality already, but I think as we do more shows and we get into understanding, you know, how the interviews go, what the segments look like, you're going to see more personality coming from us. I think in the future, we'll develop some other segments. We are going to talk about local venues, that type of thing. Good eats, good drinks. Correct. So we just hope that you all continue to listen as we continue to develop our personality. You know, the question for us right now is... Who will be the right people to be interviewed on this show? And I think Darren said it when we started out. It's going to be those folks that are in Nashville. They're trying to make it in the music business. And they've got some very interesting takes on how the Nashville music scene works. So our goal is to push that out there to you all. Hopefully you'll get something out of it and continue to listen. And if you're an independent, if you're not an independent listener, they'll find another podcast. There you go. So our goal is hopefully to entertain you and bring to you some music that you have not heard before. Uh, Open your eyes to some things that we think are out there that are interesting and that should be checked out, should have some light shed on it. What we'd like you to do, there's one thing right now. If you listen to this and you like it, please tell somebody about it. At one point, you will hear a dog whining. Now, that's that's my dog. Ooh, did you have this euthanized? I did. Don't tell my wife. He's kidding, folks. He's kidding. No, I'm serious. <laughs> so yes, in this interview, we've got four different people coming from three different locations. You've got Darren coming from a remote location. You've got my son, Jacob, a remote location, Mark Allen Barnett and myself from the G-Town studio. And I think a lot of this is you, 
Mark was such an easy interview. From the second we turned the mics on, he just started talking and we started chatting back and forth. So I think a lot of it is just putting a tape recorder down and just capturing the conversation. So Tony, why don't you tell us how you came across Mark Allen Barnett? I uh, had some out-of-town guests come in and like you, Darren, when I bring people in from out of town, we try to give them the best Nashville experience we can. And we had tickets to the third and Lindsley Saturday afternoon show that starts around noontime on every Saturday. It's a tough ticket to get. I believe we were there about 40 minutes before and there was already a line out the door, you know, 50 people long. And we just happened to walk up and the gentleman standing in front of me, we just started talking and I find out he's a musician, he's a songwriter, he's been in town for more than 30 years and making a living in this business. And we just hit it off, we traded information and caught up with Mark uh, right after the, afterwards and we talked about getting into the podcast. So setting up the Third and Lindsley thing, this is actually not in the club Third and Lindsley, this is the backstage at Third and Lindsley. And it's an afternoon event, starts at 12.30, goes to about 2.30. It's it's intimate. There's no more than 50 to 60 people in there. You're sitting on sofas. There's some chairs. There's some high-top bar tables. There's a full bar. There's food. It's family-friendly. And you're going to hear an artist that is not known in the music scene. And then you're going to hear people that have songs on the radio, past and present. So it's, it's a pretty neat opportunity for uh, out-of-town guests and even in-town guests to go to. And we can get into the type of venue, but it, it's attached to the iconic Third and Lindsley, which is a whole other episode in and of itself, what happens there. Mark is from Birmingham, Alabama. And he's been playing guitar and songwriting since the 70s, right? And he's worked with many bands and he's been an independent musician throughout his entire career. And I believe, Tony, in the interview, he says he moved to Nashville in 1988. That's correct, 1988. And he's also in the Alabama Music Hall of Fame. He received a Telly Award for his video, Less Is More, which is, I believe, available on YouTube. He won first place with his band, 24 Carat, in L.A., competing with over 30,000 bands back in 1984. Yeah, and he got his first cut with Shelby Lynn the first night he got to town. That's Which is incredible. And Shelby Lynn is a Grammy award-winning uh, artist. And he also has cuts with uh, artists like David Ball, John Barry, Frankie Ballard. And Mark has also opened for Toby Keith, Charlie Daniels, Restless Heart, Amy Grant, and many others. Not to take the many others lightly, he tells a story that Garth Brooks actually opened for him. Yeah, you can hear that in the episode. So today, I mean, he mostly performs as an independent artist in local Nashville venues like Third and Lindsley, The Bluebird, Whiskey Bent Saloon. He also plays in a band called Dane. Dangerous Dan and the Funk Town Horns. I almost screwed that up. I almost called that Dangerous Dan and, and something Town Horns. Uptown Horns. Well, no, I almost put a C in. His website is markallenbarnett.com. That's Mark, M-A-R-C, Allen, A-L-A-N, Barnett, B-A-R-N-E-T-T-E. Dot com. That's all one word. That's where you'll find him. And also, the I think the great thing that Mark does is on Monday and Friday mornings, 10 a.m. Central Standard Time, like FaceTime Live, and it's all themed, and he tells stories. I think it's an hour, hour and a half, maybe. So you get kind of a, a peek behind the curtain of, of who is Mark Allen Barnett. Some of the things we learned about Mark, around 2000, he started you know, kind of looking inward and seeing what he could do to improve the music industry itself. And at that point, he started to teach. 
Yeah, he started to teach to be like a performance slash like kind of kind of a guide for these folks or maybe a mentor. Uh, he comes in, he wants to know about what what they're like and what they want to do and what their end game is, and and kind of tailors his consultancy with the artist or potential artist around that information. The stories were so good. It, it, he kind of takes you on a journey of not only what he's done as an artist, but kind of how the scene has changed behind the scenes of the music industry, kind of peeking behind the curtain and see who really pulls the strings and and what it and, and what that means in Nashville. I mean, you are kind of jaded by watching stuff on TV. It's tour buses, it's big hotel rooms and big houses and mansions and servants and all that kind of stuff. You know, Mark tells a story. Uh, I think there's a couple different instances about individuals who had number one songs that were delivering pizzas, being plumbers, doing all this kind of stuff. So it's not the glitz and glamour that everybody thinks it is. We will focus on Mark's music throughout this interview. We have four songs that we're going to include. And as we introduce Mark here, the first song, there's going to be an excerpt of the song Can't Blame Nobody But Me. And then we'll hit a break in the interview and we will break that up with an excerpt from the song Red Hot Passion. And then at about the hour and 58 minute mark, Mark will do a rendition live in the studio of his song Tables and Chairs. Love that song. And then as we exit the interview at the end, that song is called That's the Time I Think of You. These are all off his CD, A Life Well Lived, which was released in 2019. But just because this is national, this is not country music that Mark Allen Barnett puts out this is blue eyed soul is what you're going to hear off that alive well live cd absolutely and then the one last reminder from us if you like what you hear tell somebody please and if you want to connect with us go to musiccityscene.com all of our links are there uh, you can find us on the uh, in the show notes we're going to have some links to our instagram page or facebook page etc cetera, etc cetera. and we hope you enjoy mark allen barnett as much as we did as we learned mark says you don't choose music music chooses you and without further ado here is mark allen barnett there was a time i wanted you gone thought i would be Better off on my own But I realize Now that I'm free Something ain't right I sleep alone every night Can't blame nobody but me Can't blame nobody One of the realities that you learned was how few people that uh, actually made all of their living from music. I've sat in with hit songwriters, with Grammy Awards, with uh, gold and platinum records on their walls, and have the writing session interrupted because they had to go deliver pub- uh, had to deliver plumbing supplies for their plumbing right. supply business that they had before they moved to town. That they kept. A lot of these guys will come here with a skill like electricians. Uh, plumbers, contractors, they keep their licenses up to date and will pair, pair yeah. up with somebody else so they keep yeah. their business going because you may get a big hit, 
that's great for a little while, but it's going to run out, and you're going to have to have something to, to fall back on, literally. No, it, it, it's great. We're going to have um, uh, one of my buddies on a later, a, a later, I guess, episode, and um, Ronnie moved here from Florida. And he loved the band Jason the Scorchers. Oh, yeah. I remember those guys. Open for those so, guys. So he looked up, uh, he just got the phone book and looked up Warner in the phone book and called him. Uh-huh. And went over to his house and he <laughs> showed him all this stuff. And um, I, I wanted to tell that story because, you know, it, it's pretty small. You know, we, we, I was not a big country music fan. Um. I especially don't like the new stuff. I do not like the new stuff. And I was just shocked as to, you know, you always hear this story of, of, of Willie Nelson writing crazy and right. that whole yeah. basically giving it away. Yeah. It was a huge hit. But, but I was just shocked at how many of these artists you hear on the radio do not write their own songs. Right. You know, we're right. Tony and, and, um, Tony and I are big fans of Todd Snyder. And he tells a story of, you know, he bumped into this guy and, um, he was the guy that wrote Tomorrow Tomorrow Never Knows or whatever that song is. Like that and he goes, yeah. he goes well, now wait a minute, I, I, I met one of the five guys that wrote that song, right? I mean, right. It's, it, it's, it's just crazy um, that that's, there's a whole business that you don't see that. You know, right. I grew up the blues stuff and um, I lived through the 80s hair metal stuff and you look at the liner notes and, you know, the Bon Jovi songs are written by bon jo- John Bon Jovi um, uh, what's his guitar player's name? Richie Sambora. Richie Sambora. Yeah. Sambora. Yeah. And, and Desmond Child, those three guys wrote all those songs. Right. And, and they're performing, <laughs> you know, two of those three are performing the songs. And, and in this, this city, or, you know, in this space, that's the rarity. Hey, that's the rarity. You know, you have the, you know, you can throw Dwight Yoakam out because he's out in California doing it. Yeah. And he writes a lot of his own stuff, but that's listener and observer standpoint. That's, that's been a real shock. You know, we're, um, we were going to, um, Bill blocks and, and Dane's, uh, backstage thing on, on Saturday afternoon. And, you know, Ray Stevenson's telling these crazy stories about this song and Randall Lambert walks in and like, you know, it's just all this stuff that happens. And here's the people that really, wrote the song and it's changed I think perceptions of the song because you hear a song and you're like okay Keith Urban wrote that about his wife Nicole Kidman right? and then you hear the song and you hear the guy that wrote the song and he wrote it for his daughter going off to college yeah, yeah. you know it's just it's, 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 it's insane that, that's been the the interesting thing for me as a transplant moving here right. kind of seeing the inner workings of this and also all the stuff that you are Hearing on the radio is written by a small, small group of folks. Yeah. You wanna you wanna have a real fun thing. Go back to nineteen fifty-five when the music business started in Nashville. And if you look from nineteen fifty-five on, there were about twenty-five people that got a majority of the cuts every year. All right. Yeah. All of that. And you you see the same names popping up. Well, you fast forward to now and there's about twenty-five people that get a majority of the cuts. Yeah. It's exactly the same. And now, uh, what, what this is, this has happened over the last 20 years. Uh, you will, and, and it, is, it, it has exploded over the last five or 10 years as the value of songs, the money in songs have plummeted. What is mm-hmm. where we are is artist branding. 
you're trying to find the next Taylor Swift and you write songs around them because you're yeah. trying to get involved with their touring business. You're trying to get involved with their merchandising business. And so you'll find people like Craig Wiseman, top songwriter for, for 20 years. There's where Florida Georgia line. He found them right out of Belmont. You know, you're mm-hmm. looking for all these young, yeah. these young artists. And so you will have the artist involved in some in some capacity on the song, whether they wrote it or not, because that's the way it gets on the album. Let me let me yeah. ask you so since so those three sixty deals, which yep. I'm sure that's what you're that's talking exactly about. That's exactly what it is, yeah. So is that I get it from a business standpoint. Right. But as an artist, mm-hmm. don't you think that compromises your art because you cannot really go in the direction you want to go because there's always somebody controlling every aspect Absolutely. of your business and taking not only that, taking a piece of it. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I, from a, from somebody who's studied this for a long time, I'm not a fan of those for, for the artist's sake. Yeah. Um, gives them less and less control. Yeah. They, you know, the, the money was, the money used to be in, in the album sales, right. and then they supported that with the tour. That playing. dries up and goes away. Yeah. And now the artist has to live off, off their skin, right, and right. get out on the road. Yeah. And now they got somebody in their pocket who's sitting in an office. Mm-hmm. They're not loading the van. Right. They're not selling the merch. They're yeah. not. It's it, it's insane to me it, what the business. It is sucks. You know, Carrie Underwood pays half her income every year to American Idol. Still, and, really, but, yeah. But she's making eight to ten million dollars. She's keeping eight to ten million dollars, and so you have to look at okay, would it have been better if she wasn't on American Idol? You know, it's a dual-edged sword, and and yeah, the three sixty degrees they suck. But what are you going to do? You're you you cannot play. You cannot be right. involved. You know, that's the right. thing about the music business, man. Carlin Howard said it one time better than anybody ever said. He said, you know, show me the black and blue marks on your arms for somebody forcing you to come here. You know, yeah. nobody yeah. forced you, nobody sent you. Don't let the doorknob hit you in the ass on the way out, you know. And that was 20 years ago. It's always right. been like that. It's just, you know, you read back at like, you read back in history, the Beatles. The Beatles still have not been able to get all the publishing back on all their songs. Right. You know, <laughs> and, and, and there's a term, there's a reason there's a term starving artist. You know, because yeah. they, they get into bad deals because you have to. Now we're we're at the mercy of internet platforms like Spotify and Pandora, you know, and you got to get 100 million streams to be able to buy lunch at Wendy's, you know. Right. Uh, but but if it boosts your your um if it boosts your profile, there was a there was one of the the songs that that Lady Gaga had. And then in one period she made I think between $6,500 and $10,000 on downloads and Mm -hmm. physical sales, but she made $60 million touring at the same time. Yeah. You know, so there's where your thing is. Yeah, the the, the 360 degree degree deals suck. You don't have to do them, but you're not going to go anywhere. Well, no, I I mean, I I get that. And and that's why I think we're doing this podcast is let people know that, you know, there there are some great artists out there that... That, that, that are, I don't want to say underground, but are, dude, just well, that's what it is. Eking out a living, sure. eking out a living without that stuff, and I, it's more yeah. organic. Right, and that's that's the thing that with with all this crap, with you know, I look at um, um, I can't remember what what season of American Idol he was on. I don't really follow that show, but Adam Lambert was yeah. on, right? Okay? And he wins, I think, right? Yeah. So he's on this show. Right. How many millions of people watch it? That's right. Hundred million people. 
He comes to Wichita, Kansas, right. played the Cotillion, which is about 2,000 seats, did not sell it out. Right. Right. Because it's, it's all flash in the pan That's stuff, right? right? And, and the days are gone. Would you, would you, I mean, look, if you look at uh, one thing for me, Tony, you got to look this up or Jacob look this up, but look at Elvis and all those guys' touring schedules when they started out. Yeah. They are playing 15, 16 nights in a row, two shows a day. Right. Humping it overnight. I mean, that's why those guys are hopped up on pills. You know, they yeah. got pills to, to get yeah. them up to show them, pills to take them down. And they do that. And, Did you and watch the, the Beatles documentary, A Hard Day's Night? Yeah. That's what it was. Yeah. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Yeah. Right? And they, they only existed for really seven, six, seven, seven years, years as a group. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's hard to believe. Yeah. yeah. Well, but then <laughs> Adam, here, you know, you go with that, and Adam Lambert ends up being the lead singer for Queen. Yeah. You right. know, so I mean, it, it, it and, and yeah, coming having won one of those contests, I can tell you how overnight it will end. You know, yeah. I mean, the next day it's over. I had a, a that was the one I was in, and then a girl I worked with, Megan Lindsay, was first runner up on The Voice about five years ago, and she called um, whatever network because I don't follow those either. But she called them a couple of weeks after trying to get some video footage, and they said, "No, you're done. Once it's over, it's over." And that's yeah. it. They're on to the next contest. Contest, the nature of contest, flash in the pan, big hoopla. Once it's over, you can you get the publicity for a while, and then you're done. So that's, uh, again, I just had a girl, another girl that I worked with, was uh, made the top 20 on American Idol, Lauren Skitty, one of the best mm-hmm. singers, best writers I she, know in this she's town. the one that's from here? Yeah, yeah. That's who you need to have on, Lauren, Lauren Muschietti. And I'll send you a link. And yeah, it. but yeah. she's that's the one awesome. that's with uh, the song. Well, Sean Camp. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You'd have both of them in. That would be a really good, huh. really good. Yeah. One. So, Mark, let, let's get into. Uh, let, let's talk about you. Um, you, you know, I, I've got your bio here. Seventy-four to eighty-six, you were doing rock bands. I'm assuming that's in Birmingham. Yeah. Before you moved to to Nashville, so in the move to Nashville in 1988, what what spurred that? And, and what were you looking for coming to Nashville? The the type of music that I my band Twenty Four Carat did in the eighties was that was Lover Boy Journey, big lead singer out front, huge guitar player, uh, keyboard, uh, you know, all of those bands before the heavy metal band because what we had it was power pop. You had right. Boston Sticks, Foreigner, uh, all of those those type bands. That was the kind of band we were. And music went to the heavy metal band of the week, and you got Rat Poison, you got all those guys, all right? Then it started getting dark. About the end of 87, right in those 80s, it went to Seattle Grunge. And the the whole... the attitude of rock music that had been, let's party, let's get the women on, it suddenly got angrier. It got yeah. harsher. It, it just, it was teenage angst. Everybody was wearing flannel. And, and, and go back to that, I didn't leave uh, rock music. It left me. And I saw a group named Exile. I saw them live. They opened a show outside with, with uh, 1986. I saw them uh, on this big outdoor show in Birmingham. And they blew me away. Because I remembered them from the, I'm going to kiss you all over days, you know. And, and they came back with this country stuff. Great harmonies, great song, great musicianship, great stage presence. And I went, that's where I want to go. And by a very odd chance meeting, 
I met a guy. <laughs> this is how weird these things happen. Right. I, I, uh, my dad meets this next door neighbor he has getting their uh, their paper in the morning in their bathrobes. And this guy says, well, your son's a songwriter. And he says, well, he's loud. And he said, well, we're doing this songwriting meeting tonight. It's Birmingham Songwriters. And I went to that, and I met a guy who had lived here for 10 years, a guy named Ron Muir. And he blew me away with, with the stuff he was doing. And so I got with him and started thinking about Nashville. And mm-hmm. another guy from that group was coming up here to go to the Bluebird, to audition for the Bluebird. And I thought, well, I'll just ride with him. Because at the time, I was in that cusp of, I actually had two guys in Los Angeles that wanted me to, wanted to manage me and for me to move out there. But music was changing, and I really didn't want to go to L.A. And I thought, well, God, this is 188 miles from home. And I went to the Bluebird, and I went, holy cow. Yeah. I saw Joan L. Monster one night and Don Schlitz the next night. I went, that's where I am. And so the combination of meeting someone who was from here, who had the skills and taught me how. Actually, what I did, I sat with him once a week and paid him to teach me how to write for this market. And when he brought me up. I recorded right down the street from here, Germantown Studios. I, I auditioned same weekend, January, and I auditioned at the, for the Bluebird, and and that was uh, that was the first week of February in 1988, and I moved here April 1st, 1988, and that's so. That's, what was what was the scene like? I mean, everybody knows the Bluebird right. thanks to the show Nashville. Describe the scene. I mean, clearly it's not what it is today. Well, um, just kind of walk walk our yeah. listeners through that. It was. It was and was not. I mean, it still there were a lot of people coming to town. One thing that you would find is the quality of people. You'd go to a writer's night, and there would be 10 people playing on the writer's night. And out of those 10 people, five of them would go on to have hit, hit songs. And then you would get uh, three or four that were pretty good, and then you'd always get a couple that were not that good at all. That started changing. And, and it started more and more mediocre people coming and the, and the really good people started going down and more and more places. I got here and there were probably uh, seven, eight writer's nights. There were no writer's nights on Wednesday nights. There was actually a place in Bellevue that had stand-up comedy. I had some comedy songs, so I went and did that, and they made me freaking headliner at the comedy. <laughs> and, uh, and so I, uh, you know, I was shooting for a record deal, and I put a band together pretty quick, and I would play about once every five weeks with a band. Uh, at one place in the 90s, I was one of the top 10 live uh, draws in town. And then I would do the Bluebird. I'd be Douglas Corner. So what you got was just more and more people coming into it, a lot of the same way. We, were, we had reached the pinnacle of where we were in our hometowns. And in our regions, I was pretty big in the southeast. But again, the music changed. And a lot of people started gravitating to Nashville. A lot of people, you found people who had been hit artists and other genres. You started seeing more rock guys ending up in town. Yeah. You know? And, and then you you watched the uh, the changes behind the boards. You know, you get more and more L.A. and New York people coming in uh, who are in the, the boardrooms, who are making right. the decisions. You saw the publishing companies kind of expand. Suddenly everybody had publishing companies. And you got through the 90s, and, and it, it, I called it the Garth Explosion. But uh, when, when Garth came out in 92, 93, 
suddenly everybody was getting record deals, everybody was getting publishing deals, and there were a lot more companies. And you watch that expansion of that, and you start to watch it contract. So do you think the Garth effect really, all all of a sudden, because I know you you mentioned Rat and all those L.A. bands before the metal scene, right? You you get one or two of those that that make it big, and then... Everybody else comes in and waters it down. Yes, absolutely. I mean, now Garth is at a whole other level, but yeah. did, did did you see back then just this influx of Garth imitators? At, so it, oh, God. Yeah. Every rodeo guy in Oklahoma wants to be yeah. the next Garth Brooks? I, oh, man, because I was right in the middle of it. Yeah, and, and yeah, I met Garth. I, I got told. So you opened. Have you well, opened the, the opening for him is kind of a funny thing. Because I, I, I use that. <laughs> and actually, in, actually, no, Garth opened for me. That just, it would have. And we, even better. Yeah, it was. Garth, uh, Garth moved to town. Uh, to, he moved to town in 86. After coming here in 85, and he lasted one day, and he moved back home. And his wife, Sandy, said, you, if you're, you better try this again, and I don't want to hear any more about it if you don't. Because right. he actually was doing pretty good with his band Stillwater in Oklahoma. He actually was, was doing pretty well. But uh, he just really had the bit in his teeth, and he moved back to town. He kept getting turned down by everybody. A guy at ASCAP, named Bob Doyle, became his manager, and Pam Lewis is his press agent. And So they were taking him around. They were shopping him around. And I heard about him with my ASCAP rep. And so there's a guy I've been talking to you about because you guys are kind of similar. You got you got you're about the same age. He's a lot more traditional country than you are, but you kind of got that bluesy edge, and you guys would be good writers. And so he said he's playing the Bluebird tonight and go over and see him. Well, I went to the Bluebird, it was too packed, and I couldn't get in. I had to send that yeah. little yeah. speaker outside. Oh, yeah, yeah, you know, stand up there. And and so I saw him, and it was the most. It was seriously the most ungodly thing I've ever seen. He, he did. If tomorrow never comes, and he he did the dance, and you just went, holy shit! <laughs> yeah, because he just blew you away. He came outside. He was putting his guitar in in his car, and and he says, "I know you," and I, I said, "Yes, yeah, you, Mark Allen Barnett." And I said, "Yeah," and it turned out that he had seen me a year before. He played before me on this show. I played after him because I was the feature on the show. He and his manager, Bob, actually approached me after the show. I didn't realize who they were because he was in the shadow. And he yeah. named the song that I had done that he like, can't blame nobody but me. Yeah. Uh, and and when at that time, that night, I remember because I remember the dumbest thing I ever said to him. Because I said, what are you doing with that song? It was my ending song. It was this huge barn burner. And I said the dumbest thing I've ever said. I said, I'm hanging it on to myself because I'm going to be an artist. And he said, well, you should, man. And that was why I didn't get it. But Garth remembered that song. Yeah. And and so he said, yeah, Tom Long's been talking about you. We need to get together. And we were supposed to get together the next week. That next day, he got signed by a, a guy named Lynn Schultz, who was the guy that turned him down that day. And wow. that's that. And, and Garth exploded. But yeah, I was at uh, uh, two years. Garth comes out in, in 92. He did this special called uh, An Evening with Garth Brooks. And he broke seven guitars on stage. It was a big, a big show and mm-hmm. a, a, a live concert. And the next day, the sales of he, everything went through the roof. 
1993, I believe, the gross sales of every product in country music was $244 million. Two years later, it was $2.5 billion. That yeah. was the Garth thing. Right. But I remember being at, at Capital, uh, no, at MCA Publishing, and there was a, a, a poster of the new artists that were coming out, and there were four guys on that poster that looked just like Garth. They had the same clothes, the same hat, the same expression on their face. And and every time you get some, every time you get a Taylor Swift, you're going to get 500 just like them. You know? right, right. And they're, they're already being developed. That's another thing that most people don't well, come out with the Florida Georgia line, suddenly this bro country. There was, that was out there before. Florida Georgia line is just the first one that hit. And then the record companies are all follow the leader. Well, here's yeah. our group of guys that are just like them. And that's why you see everything is it sounds exactly the same. How many but, movies do you see that are reboots? How many superhero movies come out? Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, it turned into, it's like entertainment is, is it, it, there's no creativity anymore. And I think popularity stifles creativity. Absolutely. Because just because one person likes it or what have you. I mean, look at Tony and I's and even Jacob's um Taste of music are all over the board, right? And, and to your point about a good song earlier, I I don't care if I like the artist or not. There are some well written songs right. out there that I'll grab my guitar and just kind of work my way through. But that is a great song, right? right. Well, that's the stuff that people should be listening that's to. True. That's true. But Mark, I want to go back. Let's talk about your music for a little bit. So you're, you're at this time you're doing country. Yeah, you were the country band. So, yeah. explain to me, because I've listened to A, white, a Life Well Lived, mm-hmm. and it is blue-eyed soul, man. Yeah. It yeah. is right. soul. It, there's not a lick of country right. kind of in that. So, right. kind of talk us what progression we went from doing the kind of the, the country blue stuff to mm-hmm. this soul music, because there's there's not a lot of that stuff in this town. Right? right. There's not a lot of that stuff that you can go listen to. That's kind of the where we're going with this is there's more than just Broadway and right. more than just the countryness. So take me through the decision or, or maybe it's always been there, mm-hmm. but talk about going from a, a, a quote unquote country artist to this, this soul stuff, man. I got to tell you, it was, it was, it, it was a welcome surprise to me because, because my father's a big music fan and, 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 and before we, we moved to Nashville, he was into this, you know, uh, average white band stuff, and uh, then got into Jack Mack and the Heart Attack type music. So, how did you, how did you go from the country stuff to this? this I guess it's the latest album, uh, Life Well Lived, yeah. in, in taking it into a soul spin. Well, and uh, before you say, weren't you? Didn't you have a horn band, or don't you? Have uh, yeah, I've got, I've got an eleven piece horn band that I'm in too, but they're, they're not my bands. Dangerous Dan and the Funk Down Horns. Yeah. Uh, when I, all right. You got to go back. Actually, one of the songs that's on that can't blame nobody but me was was the big song that everybody was uh, was raving about when I moved to town. Yeah, it's a smoking song, man. Thank you. Night, there, when I first moved to town, there was a huge contingent of the Blue Eyed Soul. There was a guy named T. Graham Brown that got signed in 1986. That led to Delbert McClinton getting signed. All right. Mm-hmm. Then there was Leroy Parnell, and then I was in town and I was doing. 
that blue-eyed soul with some with country instrumentation. I had steel guitar. I had it was the voice, but it's like you know if you listen to a lot of the Eagle stuff, you know you can there's there's a lot of country that was in it that was considered rock at that time. So there was an element of blue-eyed soul, and a guy came over to me and said, I love everything about what you're doing. I was in Marietta, Georgia three weeks ago, and I signed a guy just like you. His name is Travis Tritt. So I was doing roughly what Travis was doing. It was the same kind of bar, honky-tonk, Hank Jr., uh, bluesy country. That's what I was doing. Then Garth comes out and changed the entire nature of the business. And so I continued on and I went from that and I was doing great live business and I was, I was getting cuts. I got David Ball, too much blood in my alcohol level. I got John Barry, uh, I think called Rescued Me. I, we kept getting cuts, but didn't get the big singles because I had a writing deal. So I was writing for other people while performing at the same time. And I had a variety of people that approached me as management people, publishing people, and, and, I, they just couldn't get me into the 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 record deals, uh, past the development deal. So I kept kind of the same style, but I separated what I was writing for other people and then what I was keeping for myself as an artist. Then as that all ended, I kind of, uh, I just kind of morphed everything I was doing into what I always wanted to do to begin with, which is kind of that, hell, more Americana uh, R&B than anything else, right. you know, but much of what I've done is, is remained the same. You could take, and it's funny you talked about, about, uh, too much blood in my alcohol yeah. level. We wrote that song as, as kind of Hank Jr. Yeah. You know, and then David cuts it, the same song and it's straight up traditional country. It sounds different. It sounds different. And, and that's so, I've had cuts by a very country artist that's the same song that I did, just the inflections in my voice and the instrumentation is different. We got 13 cuts on, on one song, and it, it is a, on a, this song rescued me. It was cut by John Barry as a country song. It was cut by a five-piece acapella group <laughs> called Tonic Soulfall. Same song. Been cut by bluegrass people. Uh, and, and last year, Last year, I got a cut uh, on um, Ralph Stanley, the bluegrass, yeah. Ralph Stanley. His yeah. granddaughter uh, is a bluegrass artist. Got a cut on one song for that. And at the same time, got a cut on Ides of March, which is a 70s horn band. Right. That's what I write a wide variety. Yeah. The things that I recorded, that I recorded on this CD, we added a horn section because I'm playing with a horn band. And mm. but those same songs, I could play you versions of those same songs that are really, really country. It's in the inflections in the voice, and it's also mm. what's going on in the industry at any particular time. Now I could be Jacob's age, and I guarantee you, I could. Well, and I did I, with Frankie Ballard. Frankie Ballard was a young me, and he was doing the same bluesy, swampy stuff. But you talk about record companies. He gets in with the record company, and it gets in with Warner Brothers. The reason that they signed him was the stuff that I wrote with what, him. When, what year were you working with Frank? That was Bunny? 2009. Okay. And, yeah. and he gets signed to the record company, and then he goes for two years and can't get traction on anything that he released. So, and then Sunshine and Sunshine, and Sunshine and, and Whiskey. That's right. Comes out. Did he write that? No. No. And, and, and so they told him, they told him he, he got three number ones. They said, you got to have five number ones before you can record what you want to record. And so that's, you know, that's the that's nature. Control it. Yeah. It's the nature of the beast.
So, but Frankie came in doing, getting his record deal, doing exactly the same stuff that I was doing all along. So, you know, I just can't figure the, can't figure the business out. And that's my, my whole goal is that work on what you can do. Don't, don't chase trends, you know, try to be who you are. And then if you, if you do it right, you will encounter people that will help you go into avenues, you know. Well, and speaking of Frankie Ballard, so I'm a big Bob Seger fan. Yeah. So I go to, so so I, well, I go to Bob Seger yeah. concert in yeah. Nashville probably eight or nine years mm-hmm. ago. Maybe, maybe not that long ago. Frankie Ballard opened for Bob Seger. That's right. And he was more um, contemporary. And I thought, man, I like this guy. Right. And, you know, he had, he was like more cutting edge, right. like more Adam Lambert type, you know, yeah. the skinny jeans and all that. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, like a couple of years later, sunshine and whiskey, and now he's right. all country. Yeah, yeah, it was interesting. Just- well, the way that we got his deal is that he would come into Nashville once a, for three days, uh, once a month, and we would write songs. We wrote we wrote four songs each time. He would go back. He's from Michigan. He's from Kalamazoo, Michigan. Yeah. And he would go back to Kalamazoo, and he had a band, and he'd work out the songs with his band. And he started getting known to be an original artist more than a cover artist. That was what my role was. And uh, they he started becoming huge in Kalamazoo and Grand Rapids. Well, he started opening shows for Dirk Bentley, Shooter Jennings, Bob Seger, yeah. Cracker, all these people. He's playing all over the Michigan area. And he's coming in, and I got him into writing with some hit writers here. And between doing both of those, his reputation was like, but Bob Seger loved him. Kid Rock loved him. Yeah. They were putting him on shows. So he would have had a career had he never gotten a record deal. He would have been able to tour the Midwest. Yeah. He'd been able to do all this stuff. And they loved him. That's why they put him on these shows. And But he had to walk the line of the record company to do that first before he get released. Another guy that I knew pretty well was Keith Urban. And Keith always tried to do the band thing. He was doing almost like, uh, he was doing this kind of hybrid um, almost experimental rock stuff. He had two different bands. He had Four Wheel Drive and The Range. Uh, Keith Urban and Four Wheel Drive, Keith Ur- The Ranch. And he was doing this kind of, you'd watch him and you would go, where does that fit in radio formats? There's nothing that yeah. it fits. And he had two albums on MCA and they just, neither one of them did anything. And his, his handlers sat down and said, look, you're going to have to focus on the pretty boy thing. And he didn't want to do that. But he did that. Now what does he do? Whatever he wants to. Well, but so at the end of the day, what's the difference between you, Frankie Ballard, Keith Urban, Rivers Rutherford? Yeah. What's the difference? Nothing. Because nobody knows Nothing. you or Rivers or, or the right. people behind it. So what? Why? What's different? It it, it just it's can, there's you can't define it. Timing. You know, right when I was getting the at the beginning, getting the most interest label wise, Garth comes in and the face of country changed. It went to the press jeans. It yeah. went to the cowboy hat. Went to you know, you had uh, Clint Black that came out of that. You had Ricky Van yeah. Shelton. You had all the more George Strait came out. Of, you know, George Strait was there right before it. But the the whole country thing. What 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 Garth did, he brought rock stage shows and energy into country music. Yeah. And, and that changed the dynamic of everything. What happened to me was just, I was caught in, same as what happened to me in rock. I, the, yeah. the rock changed. 
I was caught right in the cracks. And that's the, you had uh, one of the questions you asked, you know, what is the, the hardest lesson I've had to learn is the random nature of all of this. About 85% of a career you have no control over. It's other things. You get into record deals that they want to change exactly who you are. You know, mm-hmm. it does stifle creativity. What are you going to do? You can do nothing. You can try to find your own niche. You can do, you use social media, you, you do what everybody's having to do, and you hope that that niche brings other people to you that will help you expand your niche. As, and, you, you. and you were here for 12 years, from 88 to 2000, and in 2000, you're like, all right, yep, I'm leaving. Yeah. What, what, what changed then, and then what made you change and say, no, I'm going to see this out? Because two people, a couple from... From Orange County, California, Irvine, California, Cliff and Bev Nelson asked me to come teach their workshop. They had an NSAI workshop out there, about 45 people. And they flew me out and showed me how to actually make money teaching. And I could do, it was practical applications with, it was a teaching lessons with a practical application effect. I could write songs with these people, show them the process of writing songs, and get killer songs out of it that I could still pitch and promote and 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 do that. Yeah. And that brought the teaching lessons, and that showed me a way to make money at it. Yeah. And then another friend of mine, another friend of mine, came into town. I went. Uh, we kind of grew up together, high school together, and she showed up out of town. Uh, from I had not I had not heard from her in fifteen years, and she called me up out of the blue and says, I've got a friend of mine from New York. And this girl, this is a girl, and she wants to see if she wants to move to Nashville. Will you take us around? Yeah. So I come in. The girl comes in. She's a little oriental girl. She's making a, half, a quarter million dollars a year as a bookkeeper in New York. And she sits down and she plays me some of the strangest stuff I've ever heard in my life. I didn't know what it was. Where do you put this? And then I took her around the town. And we we have always had, you know what guitar poles are? Yeah. Yeah, okay. You know, a little party. We have to sit around. And, you know why they call it a guitar pole? Because you have to pull the guitar out of somebody else's hand if you want to play. That's, that's you know, you know, yeah. <laughs> but but I, I got her into two of those. And she was she just didn't like, she's, she's a snooty New Yorker. She didn't yeah. like Nashville. But my friend goes, you know, you ought to turn this into a business. And what? I'm just taking people around. She says, that's the idea. You're a tour guide. You help them. And so that's where my tours came from. And so I didn't leave because it just another opportunity presented myself. I know about every hole that you can fall into. I can keep people. I can help them improve their game, just like a golf coach. I can show you how to hit the site. I can show you how to read the greens. I can show you what club, and I can work on your stance. You got to make the shot. What was the big place in the early days when you first got there? in the early day? The big, the, well, the Bluebird always. The Bluebirds always. And I'd say even before that, like Exit In. Exit in, was Exit in was the seventies, but Exit In was always kind of the rock edge stuff. It was yeah. that this purely songwriter that that, that the Bluebird focused that yeah. unlike anything else did. Okay. And and because it was small, and you could always have a packed crowd. Yeah. And the reputation of the Bluebird. If you were trying to get a record company executive, you're trying to get a publisher to come in and see. You, you tell them you're playing the Bluebird, they'd go there. They might not go to all these other places. Yeah. And there was always at least three places that were always on top of the places you wanted to play. 
It was a place called in Bellevue called the Cockeyed Camel. It was a place called Bogies and then the Bluebird. Those were the three places that you would play. And and if you go today, you got the Bluebird, you got the Commodore. Has that Master Bluebird has been in the same place? The Bluebird's been in the exact same place. Okay. Always. The the uh, Amy Curlin, who is the mm-hmm. one who found it, her father owned that strip mall. Okay. Her father was named Shelley Curlin, and he was uh, back in the. You ever you ever heard the term country politan? You ever hear that term? Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, country politan was the big sweetening string sounds, you know, that was on country music, Patsy Cline and and, and, uh, Tennessee Ernie Ford and all that stuff. You know, they had that big string. Shelly Curlin was the string arrangement. He was a classical violinist, and he would arrange all the strings for that. And he made a lot of money, and he bought that strip mall. And so Amy put that... That she wanted to be, Amy went to culinary school in in New York mm-hmm. and wanted to be a, a chef, and so she started this little restaurant. It was supposed to be a society woman tea and cucumber sandwiches restaurant. That's what yeah. it's supposed to do. Then she started dating a songwriter and put him into play, <laughs> and that, and that's how it happened. Don yeah, Schmitz a- wandered in, and she'd give him a bottle of scotch, and he'd play all night. <laughs> Yeah, There's a great documentary on iTunes that just released, I want to say a couple months ago, yeah. about the Bluebird. Yeah. Really good documentary. Yeah. So It was yeah, on, on iTunes? I only had one problem with that whole thing, that I was not featured prominently on it, but that's okay. Because I, yeah. I was there the whole time, man. Yeah. It's, it's funny to watch yeah. this thing as well, but that, that's true. Okay, so what's, let's talk about, so with the horn band and playing out with that, yeah. where are some places... Outside of Broadway, that that you recommend people check out. Well, it depends on what your taste in music is. All right, if you want, if you want the original type stuff, you're always going to have to go west of town, or you can go uh, for songwriting stuff. You got the listening room. You got the local. You got uh, Douglas Corner. You got uh, for the. Bigger, more band-oriented stuff. You got Third and Lindsley. Yeah. Uh, you've got um, oh God. Let's see. What is some? Um, there's a couple I haven't been. You know, I, I used to go to the basement. Uh, yeah. I haven't been there in a long time. The whole uh, East Nashville opened yeah. up, but I don't know what's happened uh, with the the storm and everything. Yeah, right now, a lot of places nothing. got hit. Yeah, the ba- yeah. basement got hit. Yeah. So they're ex- it's going to be a few months before they right. open back up. Right. Those are the places. I mean, you know, there's always at any one time in this town, you've got about ten standalone areas. That would be Douglas Corner, the Bluebird. Those places are in a place they stand alone. You've got. Uh, two or three hotel bars. You've got, uh, there's usually a bar down in the Omni downtown that you've got that. You've got uh, the Commodore. You've got Maxwell House. You've got, uh, there's always three or four of those hotel bars. They change, you know. One of the, one, I, I wrote this book freshman year in Nashville one time, you know, it's a yeah. little booklet, like a handbook. And, and somebody said, you know, the one thing I'd really like to see on, on that is, uh, you know, a listing of places to go. I said, they close faster than they open up. You can't physically <laughs> do that. You can do it on a website, but you can't do it in a book. Yeah. Same with technology. When I wrote my book in 2001, the, the internet was just beginning. Yeah. You know, that's a whole different world. And I don't ever want to get into technical things because they can move past me. That's just not my right. yeah. Now, the craft of songwriting doesn't change. Mm-mm. The art of performance doesn't change. And the art of networking doesn't change. 
Those are the three things that I focus on. And then I do, I talk about business and only to the point, here are things that are the 360 degree deal, the, yep. the, the nature of publishers, uh, the nature of co-writing. If you're going to come into this town, you better learn to co-write very quickly because that is the Nashville handshake. It is not who you know, it's who knows you and how they know you. And, and so you're known by the company you so, so Mark, that's what I was going to ask you, and I'm glad you brought that up. So, you have somebody you you that that approaches you, wants you to be their coach, their songwriting coach, whatever yeah. performance coach. All right. What 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 is something that these folks are missing when they want to break into the Nashville scene? Are they missing the business? Are they missing that how important the co-writers are and the networking portion is? I mean, no. I, I I see I've been to several of these writers rounds. No. And you've got this young person with a $5,000 guitar who has probably got misguided advice about how great they are. And they think that there's going to be a line of agents in that room that's going to pluck them out and give them this big contract. What what do you see from your side of it? I, I see what in the past uh, five years, it has exponentially gotten much, much worse. We've got a bunch of Facebook and Twitter and YouTube uh, stars. They think they're stars. Their whole thing is done in the in the comfort of their living room. Their their friends and their parents like them, which literally like them just clicking a button. It doesn't mean they're going to show up. They do not get outside of that. They write their own little stuff. And, and, and how many times when you go to a writer's night, how many times do you feel like you're, you are uh, uh, attending a self-therapy session? Oh, so here's what happened, man, and I'm not knocking this because I think it's great and and being a kind of a hobbyist myself. I mean, if I could sing, I would love to play the Bluebird say just to say I've done sure. it, right? Yeah. Okay, you take the Monday, I think it's a Monday night yep, session Monday. you do there where it's a, it's the catapult thing. Yeah. I don't know who has told some of these people, get up there, that's great, right. because it it's, and I, and I think a lot of it is they come to town, they want to play that stage yeah. so they can say they've done it. Yeah. Not like I would do, right? That's, that's right. But I think there's a lot of misguided, and, and, and I think that folks don't understand how it works. You know, one of my neighbors is an entertainment attorney, yeah. and he's, you know, you, you get somebody on, like you talk, we talked about earlier about the, the contest and that, right. and, and what's happening now in our culture when it comes to quote-unquote entertainment. Mm-hmm. They think they can come in, do this. There's agents involved, stylists, right. writers. Right. It, it's. I, I think that the system also flushes those those folks out pretty quickly. Would you agree or no? Absolutely. So we have 600 people a week that either come here or move to this town, and that's offset by about 1,200 people a week that have lasted between six months and two years. Most people are gone by two years, and it's at least a 10-year town. Yeah. Right. You know, that's why they try and sign artists at 18, 19 years old. So by the time they're 23, 24, they're, they're right to get something done, yeah. you know, and, and Taylor Swift forced that even down. So you got 14, 15, 16 year olds, but every parent, you know, all these parents are living vicariously through their kids. They think right. they've got the next Taylor Swift, which is their, their new 401k. 
You know, all those women, you remember, and I know we're probably, I'm 60, almost 62. I, I know we're all about the, not far away. But you yeah. remember the, the women that would all put their daughters into the beauty contest? Yes. And all yes. that? Yeah. All of those people have shifted to buying guitars and putting them into music lessons and putting them in all this stuff. And, and the, what, the, the big thing, they lose the sense of reality. They, it's easy when you sit in a room full of your friends. When you go into a room where everybody's just like you, trying to do the same thing, and you bring those same inward-looking, poor, poor, pitiful me stuff, you're going to get run over quick. And you're going to either leave or get better. Yeah. You know? So let's talk about this situation we're in today with this uh, coronavirus. And and, 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 and for those uh, that may be listening, they're not from Nashville. So the city is really suffering. We, we got hit with a tornado. Ten days later, the city goes on lockdown. Broadway is shut down. We drove. We were at Tony's house one night late as midnight. And my wife's like, look, let's just go down Broadway and see what it's like. It was like Friday night at midnight. No traffic. Nobody. It was the eeriest feeling ever. So what has that done with some of these artists that have moved here and barely making it? Are are they going back home? Are they... Because there's no industry for it. They, they, uh, people are trying to hold on as long as they can, but a majority are going back. Um, the the COVID nineteen I, I, for some of us have been around for a long time. We feel like with with the way that the internet hit the industry, taking money out of a lot of us feel like we've been in under COVID nineteen for about twenty years. <laughs> you know, yeah. and, and, and so uh, it's it's just sped up a lot of that. You know, right. and no matter what. Anybody that moves here, you better settle in and just enjoy where you are because you are, I don't care how good you are, it's going to take you a while because everybody you meet, not only is your potential ally, nobody, you know, mm-hmm. co-writer, somebody might move on into becoming involved with publishers, a record company company, and that's going to help you with your connections. They're also your direct competition. Right. And you are stepping into a room, a, a, Town full of everybody just like you. You better learn to get along. It's a shark really. tank. It is a shark tank. You know, and, and it, it, even at labels, you got everybody's trying to get the same budget funding. You know, inner office, uh, inner office, uh, what's the word? Politics or uh, 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 sabotage. Yeah. Inner yeah. office sabotage <laughs> happens all the time. If you're an art, artist, is, is if there's a meeting and your artist is up there they and somebody else has got a shot at you're gonna knock them the hell out of the way you know Frankie got yeah. passed on by two labels because both of them had too many blonde hair blue-eyed guitar players Still figure you know so it doesn't have to you know that's the other thing that you learn about the random nation nature of the business you can't figure it out a lot's beyond your control. And, and so that's the other lesson they've got to learn. They're going to, you know, shoot, who who, uh, who would have planned on being the only person uh, to play at one, a quarter to one o'clock in the morning and being three people in the bar, and yet my first cut came out of tables and chairs. Yeah, I was playing tables and chairs with a long Well, song, so, so boy, I want to talk about that. I, I think that, that, that these artists that are coming in, they – I think a lot of it gets lost that you have to do that because you don't know who yeah. one or two people are going to be left and you have to maintain professionalism. If you want to take this seriously, you, you're you, look, it, it's easy to be a big thing in your hometown, right? 
Okay. And you can, you can, you can draw all your friends and their friends and family members, right? Mm -hmm. You come to a market that nobody knows you in. That's what you're going to have to do. And you're going to have to build that audience, audience, especially now organically. And and that song really, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've been to the local and, um, you know, there's nobody in there and people are just up there killing it. Right. You know, that's and, right. and, and that's what I really like about it because, you know, I think the attitude is going to either make you or break you in those situations. Yeah. And, the, and that was huge. And that's that, that song always, well, thank you. you know, hearing it three or four times, I'm like, man, that's that's dead on. Yeah. Thank you. That is, that is dead on. So what do you think from somebody who's who's been in this market for a long time, what does it look like coming out of this uh, COVID situation as bars start opening up, is it is it going to be fiercer competition? Yes. Are the bar owners going to step back and go, okay, look, I've got my staples. I don't need to have all the all these people coming in. Our band's going to be. I, I know that the and that's one thing I want to get back to. I want to talk about the tipping thing down Broadway. But do you think that you're going to have bands undercutting cost or playing for free just to get back out there and play again? What that? What do you think that's going to look like? Yes. Yeah, you always in this town. You you always play for free until you get somebody to pay you for what you do. If you're in the right. standalone place, you're at Third and Lindsley. I played Third and Lindsley since I moved here. If you didn't bring in a certain amount of people, you're not yep. going to play there again. You know, because all you make. I, I used to I tell you here's what, to answer your question. It's going to be probably what it's always been, except the competition will be more fierce. Mm-hmm. I used to play Douglas Corner. And you get off at of 8th Avenue, and there's this little curve, and then you would go, and there's Douglas Corner on your left. And if you, you'd see how many cars are in the parking lot, because if you just had three or four cars, you had to drive on down to Melrose, where the only ATM machine was, because you had to go get money out to pay your band, because people wouldn't show up. So if you don't bring people in, you ain't making any money, and the club's not going to have you back. All right, so, right. yeah, right now we've had... For every one slot down on Lower Broadway, you got about a thousand people standing in line to go play that want right, to play there. Right. All right, so we're probably gonna have about five thousand people. One of the wow. things that, that this has had this effect that people have you seen so many people do a Facebook Live and the and the tipping and all that stuff. Oh, that yeah. stuff's been there the whole time. We're just seeing it now because we're all sitting right here having to watch it. Yeah. And what I have seen over probably the last 10 years, but I've seen it get worse and worse and worse. Younger people that come in who have no relationship with an audience that do nothing but be online, this is all they look at. And I have a thing called glow songs. And if you want to see how good or bad somebody is, you watch a phone, you watch the audience and you watch what the phones come up and the glow in the face of the audience. All right. Now there's two ways to look at it. If it's like this, they are so, they don't give a crap about you. They're on their phone texting and stuff. If it's like this, they're videotaping or taking pictures right. of you. You can almost right. tell how good a person is by the direction of the phone. And it's right. just we we got the the internet put thirty to sixty million creators, and that's everything from musicians, songwriters, authors, blog writers, podcasting. 30 to 60 million creators into the pipeline and 1 billion songs a month. So if you're a songwriter, you think the competition is bad, you see it. You know, there's 100,000 videos uploaded an hour on YouTube and Facebook. Right. 
You know, and then all these other things, you know, Hulu and all, all these all these streaming sites, you know. I, I remember this guy in 1998, I went to a panel discussion, and I remember this guy from the tech industry that said in 1998, he said, the thing that songwriters are going to have to deal with, with this new thing, which was called the interweb, says they're going to have to learn to do without, without uh, royalties, because those aren't going to be there anymore. And I'm sitting next to Pat Alger, and Pat Alger goes, how will a songwriter make a living? And he says, you won't. And from that point, you started seeing the hit writers, the publishers, doing what the rap industry had done. They would, you have rap star, get his young, you get Snoop Dogg or 50 Cent, bring in all the other little rap, do everything in-house, their own studios, their own production company, their own labels, and, and their money came not as much from that. They came from liquor ads, and they came from all the bling mm-hmm. that they had. Country went exactly what that did. You had the Craig Wiseman, Florida Georgia Line, yep. Jeffrey Steele, Rascal Flats, Victoria Shaw, Lady Annabella. Every hit writer will have their little protégés, and they build their publishing companies, their studios, all under that. That's why you get these guys, these 25 guys that are all the same writers. They're writing in those little clumps. Rivers Rutherford. Rivers Rutherford. Gentry. That's exactly right. Kenny Chesney. Yeah. You know, the, the Rivers Rutherford said something to me one time. that was one of my, my favorite things that ever been said to me. Yeah. Rivers Rutherford and I were playing up in, in Cincinnati. We sound very much alike. Yeah. We're, we're, our vocal style is very much alike. Was, and we're walking up the street, and, and we're walking from one stage to another, and he said, man, I want to tell you something. And usually when people say, I want to tell you something, it's not good. It's like, <laughs> you know, you really suck. But he said, I want to tell you something. He says, when I first moved to town, your band used to play around, and it was you were one of the hottest bands. And when I felt depressed and wanted to move home, I'd go see you, yeah. and it would pick me back up. And that was one of the coolest things anybody ever said, to yeah. me, you know. And and Rivers is just one of those. There, there are people, and you see them. There are people that just have that the combination of everything. They're good people. Usually, you find hit writers that are really good people because yeah. they've been they they've been nice off the stage and and all that. They're they're nice people. People like having them around. Yeah. So when they start to get hot. First of all, their songs are really good, and so there's going to be a lot of people coming to them. You go, what's hot? Hot. Record company, you, you know, if a record company spending $4 million to promote a new act, yeah. they're going to get the best songs, the best writers, but it's all it, it's all subjective. What you may think is the best song right. may not be the best song, you know, it's it's just a, a, a weird thing. That's the, the higher the level you go, the more people are in there trying to get their pieces of you, you yeah. know? And, and so that's another, we do music by committee. You know who Matt Davis is, don't you? Yeah. yeah. Matt, two years ago. Right he, the ghetto and, yeah, uh, yeah. He played Ten Pan South. And I'm, Matt's one of my heroes. And I went to see him. And he, he plays this guitar figure. And he says, does anybody here know this? And, and uh, Sarah, about half the audience, you know, they're applauding. And he says, because that was the only line I wrote in this Bruno Mars song, there were four, there were nine writers on it. No, wow. fourteen nine. writers and really? nine publishers. Yeah, yeah. My God. And that is from rap too. Rap would bring in the guys that made the sound effects, the guys that did the beats, the guy, and everybody. You look on a rap thing, nine writers on every single one. Wow. You know, and Bruno had fourteen writers on one song. You know, and and Matt Davis, one of the greatest writers there is, wrote one line in it. 
You know, and and that's but that is where music is gone, and and it's why it's so hard to make any freaking money. Yeah, because now you're dividing that slot, that piece of pie into, yeah, into yeah, fourteen time. plus pieces, right? Yeah. So, Mark, as somebody who's who's played Broadway a lot, kind of tell people that the tipping, how how artists get paid down there, because I, I it's one thing we have a bunch of people come to town and they want to go hit Broadway, right? right? And we always right. let everybody know tip the band, right? Tip the band. That's right. how they make their money, yeah. and it's even it's even worse now. Is I'll go watch. Some friends of ours play, and you see all these people buying drinks. There's no currency anymore. It's all it's all done by credit right. card. Right. But you know now now some artists are taking Venmo and PayPal and that type right. of thing. So just kind of walk through the economics of playing down there. Okay. Uh, the, from an artist perspective, because I know from a, a patron perspective, but talk about it from an artist perspective and how how tipping is is going to make or break your month down there. Really. Yeah. Uh, for many years, and I think this changed not long ago, but for many years you'd get $35 per person per shift. The shifts are usually three sets or about four hours, all right? So you would get, you'd be guaranteed like 35 then you'd work the tip jar. There's usually somebody that works it pretty good. And so by doing that, and, that, and that's taking the tip bucket around, yeah. that's also, we used to have, really, really, you'd plant somebody in the audience to bring up 10 bucks and put it in, you know, and, and you do that. Some people would do it every set. They'd have somebody come yeah. up and kind of, you know, and so, and people see it and they go, okay. And and, uh, and now people will have their, their uh, yeah, the Venmo or they'll have uh, the square, yeah. You know, and, and they'll and they'll do that. But it would be now. I think it. I think it's seventy five. But it was like thirty five. People that worked it well could take be one hundred twenty five, one hundred fifty to take home. Okay. Now what is you would you would see? And I was telling him this a few minutes ago. Um, you if you really knew downtown. You go in, say, 11 o'clock or 12 o'clock during the day, and there's four guys on ta- on stage, and they're playing in the band, or a solo guy, or a duo, some configuration. Right. If you were to stay down there all day long, you could go to different bars, and that same configura- that, that same group of people would be there. They might be in different bands. Yeah. So you're playing, right. you, you start at, let's just say, 12 o'clock, and you go to 4 o'clock, you've got, you're playing at Legends, and then you're down at... Uh, at one of the other ones uh, with a different group of people yeah. at from from five to to eight, and then you and then you go uh, and some people will play all day long down there because they don't want to lose that slot. Yeah, because right. there's a thousand people waiting to move in, and the way that you would the way you get gigs down there is you start out hanging out all night long and sitting in at one or two o'clock in the morning, getting up and playing with somebody. That's how you get known. That was another thing Frankie did. Frankie Ballard, one of the most dedicated, motivated people I've ever seen. He played five to six nights in in Kalamazoo, Grand Rapids, all these little cities. He he was a good-looking guy, so all the women came to see him. He'd do solo, he'd do duo, and he'd have a band. And he'd play different nights in different configurations. He would play on on Saturday night. He would end at 2 o'clock in the morning. He and a guy who was a friend of his would drive to Nashville. And get here mid afternoon Sunday, yeah. sleep for a while, get up. He'd go down to Lower Broadway and sit in late at night. 
and play with these guys. The next day, we'd write two songs. He'd go back down there at night and play. And then uh, and then he'd go back to Kalamazoo. He'd work those songs up with his band. About every fourth trip that he got down, we'd go in the studio and record them. And that's what got his, that's what it got his deal for. But it's that kind of dedication. I mean, 85% of a career is out of your hands and it's stuff off of the playing field. It's yeah. networking. It's being out there. It's supporting other people. That's the other thing. What 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 really has angered me is a lot of these young people that come into this town. They show up on a writer's so they show up five minutes before they're going to play. They bring two or three maybe of their of their friends. A lot of times they bring nobody in. They they play their set. They get off. Then they either talk, stand in front of the next group of people talk at the top of their lungs, or they completely leave. And they're not listening to anybody else. They're not, they Thank have you. no connection with anybody. Thank you. That infuriates me, man. Me I've been to so many of those, and, and when they're done, they leave, and the group that came they with came them, with them came to see them leave. Yeah. I think it's insanely disrespectful not supporting, not supporting the art. Yeah. Man, I mean, the, the thing that when, when I moved here, you were talking about the, the differences. All right, you'd have ten people playing uh, on a on a show, and those most of those people would blow you away. You wanted to listen to them because you wanted to know what they were doing because they were working in the circles you weren't in. And if you had a feature, you're staying there all night long. Because guess who got to be the feature on a bunch of me at the end of the night when everybody had gone home. Yeah, you know. So you would the the people who knew what they're doing, they'd stick around, they'd watch what was going on. Now. Nobody's paying attention to anything but themselves. And I blame Jacob. I'm pointing my finger right at him. I blame him. <laughs> but it is. And there's a whole thing of disrespect. And it goes, it goes to the being on the phone. Well, why would yeah. they have any respect? Because their whole deal is sitting in a room looking at a computer screen. That's right. all it's about themselves. Me, 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 me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, I think the biggest thing with people my age is they go into these performances if they're wanting to become big and they have their eyes on being famous and being that's right yeah and i think the people that that really succeed or really uh, have longevity are the ones that enjoy the process and they enjoy showing up every night and listening to other people and so i think as i get older i become more i'm becoming more of an independent listener Hmm. whereas um growing up people most people want to be told what to listen to right so I think I think that's a big thing. Um, just going through certain experiences in life and just connecting to songs on a different level, other than just other people are listening to this. So I want to listen to it. Such amazing parents you have. It just you know, <laughs> no, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And, and, and for me, the other thing that people don't don't do before they try and get here, they have no connection with audiences. It's all, they do it all in their living room. Yeah. And so they get here and you've got a, a collection of audiences who don't know you and you're and you're competing with them. And if you can't get their attention, if you can't get and keep their attention, you've got no chance to get and keep anybody else's attention, man. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is all well, I mean, I, I'm like, the whole thing for me is to get them to put the cell phone down for, for a couple of minutes yeah. to listen to a song. And they don't listen. And another thing, here's the other thing that, that, that you got to do. If you want to really, you get your songwriting antenna. If you go in and you hear, uh, you'll hear so many songs that are exactly the same song over and over and over again. Well, the first rule is don't do that. If you hear one subject written over and over, and boy, you 
Can't wait till you hear the COVID nineteen collection. Wait, it's we coming. Were it's coming, isn't it? Yeah. God, I remember the, one of the funniest times that I, it, it was here was in two thousand, and when Dale Earnhardt got killed. Yeah. Everybody had these. I'm racing with number three. Dale's up yeah. in there. It's like, yeah. what is everybody a NASCAR fan? You know. And then, and then of course, when Florida Georgia Line comes out, you know, and it's the bro country thing. They start mixing rap in. Everybody's got the little rap section in their in their songs. Yeah, and, and that's uh, right. It, it just it's just what's different. That's why I don't do negative. I never write negative in any songs that I do. And and if there's any more somber kind of thing as a big uplifting uh, a big uplifting chorus uh, tables and chairs I do what I do for the love of it sure ain't for the bucks it's an uplifting kind of thing and the the melody uplifts it even though it's a somber subject and so right. uh, I I try to do that in every song that I that I write because everybody else is writing negative. I had my eyes on you for the past few weeks. I just sat right here And I could not speak But tonight I got my courage up Since liquid encouragement Years back in fashion Well, you female bartenders Must hear every line This time look deep enough you just might find something you overlooked Someone who just might be red hot passion You were about the no connection to the audience and the audience really not having a connection with the artist. I think that's why you don't have these artists today on the whole, right? You have the exceptions, no. but there's no longevity in these careers for these not folks because there is no connection. You know, uh, we were talking about poison and rat and all of those things when the heavy metal hairband of the week came in. It was yeah. 19, yep. uh, it, it started, well, we'll start Van Halen and those guys and they were long running. But then you start getting every, uh, every week MTV had a new video. Uh, they're all the same video. Hot girl, guys playing, you know, you know, it's, have you seen the commercial? It says we've got a rap problem and it's rap up in the, up yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it was like that. Happen. And, and the, the theory, and I, a record company guy told me this. It says we're going to put, uh, we're going to put 225000 to $250,000 in them. We're going to get a return of about, uh, two and a half to three million dollars and then we're going to be done with them. They have two singles and then they're gone. And it was that formula. And unfortunately, that's what we deal with here. You know, people have, a, you're going to, you're going to got the, the new kid on the block, the new girl that looks great, the, the, the guy that is a former athlete that, you know, is some former baseball player and, and he looks good. That's going to be the flavor of the week. They're going to last. They're going to get about two singles and then they're going to be gone. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and that's, uh, unfortunately, that's part of our culture. You know, we have just a, a flavor of the second. Well, uh, Andy Warhol said everybody's going to be famous for 15 minutes. I said, I think everybody's going to be famous for 15 milliseconds. You know, but but those, but back to those the, the LA rock bands, those guys at least got out and hustled it. They right? did, they, yeah. They yeah. worked their tail off, and that's why they still can eke out a living. That's right. Yeah. Playing for two or three hundred people at, at, at a bar somewhere. Yeah. I don't. I don't see a lot of these artists that we see 
putting that time in. Oh, it's they not, don't. They don't. Because it's almost a, it's almost entitlement that I deserve to be a star because my my friend told me that, that I was good. My my parents like me. My friends like me because I see yeah. their like on things. You know, no, and that's why I don't think I, I don't think we're going to have long careers like that anymore. I think we're no. going to have short careers, flash in the pan careers, and then there will be some people. And and uh, another thing we were talking about, it, there are people that I always term iconic artists. Lyle Lovett would be one. John Prine. There are people that will float under the radar, and they will create their own niche. Some of them may get a big hit here, here and there, and then they're going to be gone, and you'll still find them out there. You want to find you want to find where a lot of your favorite bands from the eighties and seventies, eighties and nineties go to it for the Midwest. Go to the Indian casinos because they're all out yeah. there. Yeah. Charlie yeah. Pride told me one time he was making more money than he ever had and working less than he ever had huh. because of the fact that he was he he loved to play golf. He goes to these casinos and makes a fortune. He has to stay there for a few days. And then he goes, why do you think everybody was doing residencies in Las Vegas? Elton John and Celine Dion. It's not not about the return of the ticket at that point. Right. It's a draw to the casino and play for an hour and a half and get off the stage so people can go gamble. Yeah. Yeah. That's That's all it is. They don't care about the return. That's right. But they're still out there. You know they're still out there. They're, doing they're it. still out there, but but to your point about you're still going to have these artists. You've got you've got folks like uh, Sturgill Simpson who hit it big almost right. by accident. Right. Jason is Jason is though. Well. I mean, here's an art. I talk to people a lot. We get into music, and, and you bring up Isabel. He's got this niche. Yeah. Either people have heard of him or they haven't. And right. then you mentioned he sold out seven nights in a row. Exactly. Alignment. Yeah. Yeah, that's a big deal. Yeah, that is, and that to me is the future. I, I think we're going to have more niche artists. Mm-hmm. I think we're going to have more artists in smaller niches. You know, and and I right. think, see, I also that's think there's there's nothing wrong with being a a big fish in a little pond. Yeah. You know, there are people all over this country and 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 Europe too. You know, that that just develop their little sure. their little fishbowl. There's nothing wrong with that. Local and regional, and and Jason, Jason and um and Sturgill Simpson are, are exactly the the that's the model that you're going to see more of. Right. And most be most of the people going to go. I mean, you'll you'll have them for for around. They'll try this for a little while, and then they're gone. Right. I tell you another factor: the burnout factor. Have you ever known? Uh, have you ever known anybody that had their son or or was a was a uh, an athlete, you know, baseball, football, you know. Well, Got they start, they start at, at eight, nine years old, and by the time they get 16, 17, they don't want to go do any of that stuff anymore. Right, Jacob? Right, Jacob? Yeah, that's, that's it. Right, yeah. Frankie was trying to be a baseball player. His grandfather played uh, left field at uh, Mississippi at uh, Michigan State. His father. Frankie the Third played left field at Michigan State, yeah. and Frankie was doing that and tore his rotator cuff. Huh, and, familiar? Yeah. Same, same thing happened? Yeah. yeah he's and, got his surgery coming up. Okay. Well, Frankie did the same thing. He got into playing guitar. He still wanted to exercise his arm, but uh, this is right on. But he, uh, but he couldn't play baseball anymore, and so he went into music because his sport career didn't work out. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but, but, you know, you get burned out and the same with music, you get most of music is just beating your head against the wall, trying to come up with the next song, trying to get the next gig, trying to get spend 
hours on social media building. And, and, and there's so much that is away from actually physically getting out there and playing for, you know, the, you know, the 10,000 hour theory, do you, yeah. you know that one, you know, for, to be good at anything, you got to spend 10,000 hours at it. Well, music is absolutely like that. Sure. I mean, it's 10,000 right. years feels like, and, and you're always having to do stuff. That's not just about the music working another job to, yeah. you know, I mean, I know people delivering three, you know, doing two and three jobs. I remember one guy. One guy came to my house. He's a very good friend of mine. He he came to fix the toilet for his plumbing contractor business, and he had his third number one song on the radio at the same time. Well, how many how many Uber drivers in this town? You, you are so Nashville. Like, Here's my CD. <laughs> you are so Nashville. If your Uber or Lyft driver had song of the year three years yeah. ago, that's that's how okay. how you are in Nashville because it comes and goes very very quickly. But that's yeah, I mean, I bought, yeah. I bought a CD from an Uber driver. Yeah, yeah. Everybody's got a CD. Whatever, at four thirty in the morning, going to the airport. Yeah, the guy had a little sign that he was an artist. He right. had CDs. Asked right. him about right. CD from the guy. Do you know the term "gurming"? Yeah, have you ever heard that? That's okay. Saw no. that on right. your gurming is the unpardonable sin of of Nashville. That is going up to a publishing company guy, a uh, a, a record company, or an artist, or produce anybody that is trying to give them your CD. You can't do that. Yeah. There's there's two reasons. First of all, it's stupid to do because you haven't earned that thing. Second is legal. If they took that from you and then they end up writing something that's similar to what you did, they had access. Of course, now the internet, everybody's got access, so it doesn't even matter, but the, it's that physical thing. So you can't get anybody. If you don't know them, they're not going to take your stuff. But uh, I, there's a friend of mine, Jerry Vandiver. Jerry Vandiver wrote a song called For a Little While with Tim McGraw, and he's had some songs over the years. He had, had hit songs. He gets an appendicitis, and he's going to the hospital, and he's in terrible pain. And the nurse comes in to take his stats, and she says, well, you're a songwriter. He's, yeah, he's dying. He's just, I'm a songwriter too, and uh, I'd love to get you to listen to my song. He's he's dying. <laughs> so he says, okay, well, that may be afterwards. So she leaves. The orderly comes in to put him on the stretcher to wheel him to surgery, and he's walking. He says he's watching this guy's head, and the guy says, so you're a songwriter. I'm a songwriter too, and I'd like to know how to get my son while he's being wheeled into surgery. You know, you're so Nashville if you get germed when you're dying. That's being germed real. Yeah, it is real. So another thing I want to bring up is, you know, you've been here since 1988. You know, how did you make the ends meet as far as, you know, from from either before that time up to now? And I mean... Tell us about that. From from day one, I knew I was going to have to have another income coming in. And when I was a kid, you know, I worked uh, car wash. I worked all kinds of different jobs. My father was an entrepreneur and developed businesses. And I basically was a glorified gopher. Uh, we got into a business that uh, dealt in old collector cars. And if you've seen American Pickers, the, those those shows, that was my job, going into those crappy barns and, and all of that. And then... Driving around when before I moved up here, I did that and and did for our business. And then when I moved up here, I, I was still attached to the business, and I would drive around in the country and look for for cars that could be we could buy that were on. Uh, you look for a car that had a car cover on it, and that would be that somebody had some um, some treasure 
in their backyard. So I would do that. There were a lot of people that, and it happened in the 80s, you had a lot of people that had had those 60s muscle cars from the kids who went to Vietnam and got killed. And and you get older parents and they got a car and they don't know what to do with it. And so we bought a, a bunch of those cars. So I always had an income. And then when I, I moved here, aside from that, I did sessions and I played gigs and, and I did stuff all the time. You know, played Lower Broadway a few times. And then I would do with my band, I, I played Douglas and I, I did that. But most of that is a wash. You, the money that you make in those kind of things, you are, uh, you're paying out to, for your recordings and, and other stuff. There was a, a little run, uh, from the, from the first of the nineties up until, God, the maybe 97, 98. If people wanted to pitch their songs to Travis Tritt, Delbert McClinton, uh, they hired me to do the demo. I actually got hired to pitch a song to myself. I had an artist. These these two songwriters were were working with a stu- uh, with a studio that I worked at, and they they right. and the guy was saying, "Well, who do you hear this song? What kind of vocalist?" They said, sure. "Well, we want to pitch it to this guy, Mark Allen Barnett. We we really would like to we we really like his voice." He said, "Well, why don't we hire Mark Allen Barnett?" <laughs> so I came in to sing a song to be pitched to me. And if you go to you know, do you do the Alexa Dot thing? Yeah, I do, I do not. Okay, well, there's a song on there, and if you say, play the songs of Mark Allen Barnett, this song comes up. It's my voice, but it's not my song. Some songwriter that I did a demo for years ago has put it on the the network, and it pops up on, as, as me. So there's all I guess. There's also a lot of songs that have Alan Jackson, Garth Brooks, Trisha Yearwood that are demos that people did that they try to sell. You have to do cease and desist, but there's some, oh God, there's some stuff, hideous songs that I've sung on that I hope never see the light of day, you know, because you're just hired to go sing that. But I did a lot of demos. So doing a demo, is that different than session work? Yes, is it, the same it is thing? session work. Okay. It is session. But the demo is a demonstration record. It's It sounds like, as a matter of fact, some hit records have gone on from the demo. Really? They have expanded on it and yeah. reprocessed it, but it is the the demo session is a. It's usually about an hour, an hour and a half. You go in, you bring your musicians in, and then you'll hire a singer that sounds like the people you're trying to pitch to, and it's to demonstrate the record. Sure, uh, because long ago people when when you were if you're pitching to an artist, say George Strait or any major artist, there's a whole group of people that have to listen to those songs first. You don't just get it straight to the artist. You got to go through a, 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 a variety of filters that you have to go through. So you have to make it sound like it's going to sound on the radio because you're going to have some Belmont graduate who's doing grunt work listen to these songs and the ones that don't sound like get, get shoved to the side. You go, the, any, any artist will go through about 3,000 songs uh, to, before they make their decision. And, and a lot of those are songs they wrote. I went on the bus. I went on the bus one time with Eddie Montgomery from Montgomery Ginger, and he played me sixteen songs, and every one of them were they were great. Every one of them sounded like a hit. Eight of them were his songs. He was having to do demos for his own project for his record company because you, you're competing with yourself. And if the record company rejects it, that doesn't go on. There's a bunch of songs that have gone on years later. 10, 13, 14. Rivers Rutherford's had a couple that were, were 
written and demoed years before got shot down, got shot down, and, and you had to wait till the record companies change over people, yeah. you know? Too Much Blood My Alcohol level was about eight years from when we wrote that to when Wood was producing it, which I co-wrote it with Wood Newton. He's producing it on David Ball. And he had had a huge hit with David Ball with Riding with Private Malone. So David got a record deal, and he did Too Much Blood My Alcohol level, which was his song. That's why you've got to really, in order to get in those doors, you've got to write them with the artist, with the producer, or in those circles of people that are, are politically connected with those guys. Mark, tell us about your, 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 how you got your staff writing position. How do you get it? No, how, how you got yours. Hmm. <laughs> they formed the publishing company around me. Uh, There was a girl, uh, Robin Ruddy, who was at the time, this is a story, this is uh, in 90, well, first, before that, I had a bunch of single song deals. I had been offered offered publishing deals, but most of them will start with a single song, and you just get one or two songs, and then they see how that does. And, and I had a variety of things come through. And then every the road to hell is paved with best, best intentions. <laughs> yeah. They have somebody that loves you, and then somebody else gets the deal. And, and that kind of thing would happen all the time. I was playing with my band, and I, and, and I met this girl through the writer's nights. And she was, she was just funny and, and uh, a steel, good steel guitar player. And so she and her husband, her husband uh, was a woodworker. He was a master cabinet maker and was doing that. His name Larry Sheridan. And so they said, well, we've been thinking of pu- doing the, starting this publishing company because they were both into music, you know. So they formed a, a company called Best Built Songs and built it around me. And so that was how we started. In the first deal, first year, I wrote for them for free. They were just my publisher. There's actually three kind of publishing deals. There's the single song deal, uh, the open door deal, which is you get a publisher and you just come to them and that's like your friend. You still can pitch to other people. And then there's the staff deal. And then the staff deal does not always have money. It's always, they might do the demos for you or you might just be signed. Anything goes to that because they're less and less, uh, less and less inclined to put money into an artist now, uh, because they're making no money coming out of them. They get songs that get cut, streamed out of existence. They're making no money on. So they'll have staff deals that are not necessarily getting paid for it. Mine, I did get paid after the second year and went for five years on that. And uh, and we were uh, we had we got some pretty good cuts, but you know we get a John Barry cut, and then he decides to quit his record deal and go to a Christian deal, mm. you know. And then uh, David, we get too much blood and alcohol level. It's starting to chart. We do the video on it, and then the owner of the record label dies of cancer. He had a heart. He had cancer, and then he died of a heart attack. Said eighty five percent. You can't control. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, another one. I get. I had uh, uh, one of my really good friends, David Vincent Williams. We talked together for uh, for a while about he, he and his partner had been um, trying to get me to do something with them for a long time, and I was under contract to these other things. Well, my my publishing company's running out. The the money's running out of it because downloading started. They approached me about doing a deal, and they're going to do a, a co-publishing deal. They're a small independent thing that they were tied to Warner Chapel 
publishing. So it's like you get these small dealers. Taylor Swift was big machine Sony ATV. It's their co-pub deal. And so they approached me. We put this deal together. And for, for three months, I'm starting to write with them, go over to Warner Chapel. They all love me. Everything's working. I'm still having to pay, play gigs out of town. And so I was out for 10 days down in Florida playing down there. And they there was a meeting. And, and they said, we, we need your attorney to come just initial this contract. I was getting a raise in money. I was getting some advance money. I was getting a really, really good deal. And this attorney who I had known, he was a music attorney, he went in, looked at the contract, said, no, not enough money. Threw it, literally threw it back in the face of the, of the president of the publishing company, walked out. He had no authority to do that. Nobody told me about that. I was out of town. I came back in town and none of my friends, none of the people would even talk to me because they thought I was the one who was the jerk. I didn't even know about it. Yeah. That was the other reason I was quitting in 2000 because I every contact, everything, every door had gotten slammed on me and I hadn't done anything. Yeah. My backup singers, the Kinleys got a record deal. You know, it was like everybody around me got hit songs or record deals. I'm the one that gets close and never works out. And that's why I was getting ready to quit in 2000. And that's when this other thing. But they didn't sign me. But the guy they did sign was Don Rawlings. And he wrote It's 5 O'Clock Somewhere. Hmm. So they, they signed a guy that came with Song of the Year. You know, it's stuff you can't do anything about. And that's why when people say, well, what are, you know, what, what happened? Why didn't this happen? I don't know. I can't yeah. tell you. It's not my my deal, you know. Had another guy I was working with in order to get past the age factor. As you get older, you can get past the age factor better if you have a group dynamic or a duo. So I meet this young guy, original from my hometown in Birmingham. He's ten years younger than me. Good guitar player, really good looking guy. Looked like Brad Paisley. Good guitar player, good singer. We formed this duo. His name's Barnett and Jay. His name's Jay Giuliano. And, and, and so Barnett and Jay was our duo. And we start playing. We start getting attention. Get a record uh, attention with uh, Scott Hendricks, a record company guy. And, and we go into his office and we play our stuff. And, and it was pretty cool. Yeah. And he says, man, I, I really like what's going on. But you know that uh, there's a group ahead of me just like it. Montgomery Gentry. Yeah. Doing the exact same thing. Look the same. Yeah. You know, I was wearing the long black duster. I was wearing the big hat. Jay was young guy looked just like Troy Gentry. I mean, it, it's timing is everything, and sometimes it just doesn't happen. Interesting. Yeah. So after two thousand, you know, what what did you what what did you do? Which direction? Did that you was when I started from? the teaching thing. Okay. It, now, as far as my artistry, there's always two little things. I mean, I I would continue on playing. But I de-emphasize that more in the teaching thing. I would do NSAI workshops, which are National Songwriters Association. They had 110 chapter workshops around the United States and in Canada. Canada, and then I'd meet individual. There were other other uh, the the Kansas City songwriting group. You know, there's all these different things, and so I did 75 of those workshops. And I would go out. I go. California, where Cliff and Bev were living in Irvine, and then they would uh, hook me up with San Diego, and then I had another couple of friends that were in Sacramento. Most of them met me here, and when I was coming to that area, we'd just line up where I'd go, and I'd spend about 10 days doing these workshops. Every one of the workshops would be 
uh, I do the workshop. We do a show. They'd usually have a couple of their writers open the show. I was the feature on it. Then I would do private appointments. Most of the time it was song critiques. And then we got into the teaching songwriting thing. Those are two-hour appointments. And people would sit down and I'd teach them the process. I mean, it's like teaching somebody to fish. Here's the way that you take the information. You know, Most of the songs that I've ever written are from real life. There's somebody telling me about their life. And I do things, it's really funny. They say it's like self-therapy. Yeah. It's like going through, because they think they were a therapist, because I get them to bear their souls, and I'm writing the yeah. stuff down. And in my mind, I, now this is the one thing that I can't explain how it works, because it's I'm like Rain Man. I just somehow develop these kind of melodies and this stuff, and, and they'll tell me the type, I, I'll ask them three questions. Uh, what type of song? Do you love but have never written? Is there what is your favorite song that's ever been written? And if you could write a song for anybody living or dead, who would it be? Mm-hmm. That gives me a target. And if they have people, Jason Isbell, you know, some people say I really like this, so I'll go pull up their video and I'll look at it. So it gives me kind of a target area, all right. And so, and and then also they'll usually play some of their songs if they're performers. A lot of people are not performers, but I will listen and then at, we'll start this conversation. And I just got a yellow legal pen. I'm like a psychiatrist and I'm writing stuff down. They don't realize I'm writing the song. I'm writing the song based upon their experience and things they say. They'll actually say lines that they don't realize are lines. The best lines and you hear most country stuff. If you pull the music out and you just go look at the lyrics, it's like two people talking. There are three elements of country music. It's reality-based, it's conversational in tone, and it's a reinforcing melodic hook that becomes an earworm that just is like that. Music in rock, in rap, in, in uh, most other types of music is production-driven. Rock would be, the way you write with rock bands, and I was in rock bands for many years, somebody would come in and be a drummer with a groove, bass player, guitar player's got a figure, and the singer gets up there and da-da's and makes up lyrics and you record it on a cassette, then after all the music is, is ironed out, you go and you'd write lyrics that fit the da-da, which sucked. Yeah. In in country and in Nashville style writing, because it covers everything, God, I've had short songs, jazz songs that charted. I've had uh, uh, one of the guys I worked with had became was CMA, Texas CMA, Cowboy Singer of the Year last yeah. year, and I wrote a couple of the Cowboy songs, and then I got a cut with uh, with uh, Jim Peterick and Ides of March, which is a '70s rock song. So I'm all these different styles of song, but the lyric the the lyrics for the most part are all reality based situations. And so by te- listening to these people in about 30 minutes, I can flesh out a verse and a chorus of a song. I'll pick the guitar up and I'll play what is in my mind. Yeah. We're all hearing it the first time. First time I've heard it too. Usually we have the phone running and and we'll record it. And if that's what they like, then we'll go on and finish the song or, or some of them will like to do it themselves. One thing that you'll find in most of hit songs in Nashville, and if you've ever, if you go to a, an artist and you, you turn on those CDs and you see the same names pop up on all the songs, the reason is because those people usually write together regularly. It might be once a week, might be. Right. They get in in the first part of a of a songwriting session. You just talk for about an hour over what's going on. If you're writing with anybody who's a hit writer, usually it's complaining about how bad the music business is, which we all know. And then you, the first, the last 
hour or 30 minutes is usually you're starting to get some ideas down. And if you can get a verse and a chorus, that gives you a roadmap. And a lot of those songs are done in two sessions. The mm -hmm. first one to get it down, the writers will get away from each other and they'll work on it on their own. So they get back together and they bring up that first song. And usually it's like you pick one from column A, one from column B, and that's where the songs are. Then you go and start writing another song. So you'll find multiple songs on a, on a project because they've written regularly. And that's those little writing groups. There's a, there's a group of guys um, called the Peach Pickers. And they're all from Georgia. You know, they met here, but they're all, they all got the hometown connection. Uh, there's, uh, a lot of those writers groups, and that's something that's happened for a long time, too. The, you go back into the, the 50s and the, well, 60s, 70s mostly, and you'll find Christopherson and Willie and Roger Miller and those guys, you know, they, they wrote a lot of solo songs, but you'll go back and you'll, Bobby Braddock and, uh, Curly Putnam wrote, he, he stopped loving her today. They wrote a ton of songs. You know, and and those were the people I, I moved here in the '80s, so I was seeing all those guys in the '70s from the the late '60s and '70s. They're starting to get moved out, you know, and and you got the guys from the '80s come in. There's a class of '86 and '87, '88 that came in. You had Vince Gill, you had Reba McIntyre, you had all of those artists, and then you had uh, the the writers and Rivers came in. Rivers came in after me. Right? Rivers came in in the nineties. Mm -hmm. You know. So, but every generation, every generation gets replaced by the next generation, and so they're complaining about what's on the radio. <laughs> the only thing, my my grandmother's second cousin was Jimmy Rogers, and they used to give him hell. They didn't think he was a country singer. They said he was a blues singer. Yeah. You know, and and so this stuff has gone on for a long, long time. But I'm with you. I don't like I don't like anything rapid fire, you know. And one of the elements of country today, there's a lot of rapid fire lyrics. That's because people like Jacob, they're more influenced by rap and hip hop artists than they are with country artists. And it's in the culture again. Do you remember? Do you remember? Uh, I guess it was about six, seven years ago when they had the quick cut commercials. You know what that was? All the commercials would have just instant images, and they changed images all, all the time. You remember that? You know why they had to stop doing that? People were having seizures. They were having so yeah, so many images coming. They would have seizures and literally were having heart problems, all kinds of problems. So they had to quit doing that. What happens is the influence. Who do you like, Jacob? Who are who are some of your your favorite people? Well, I mean, like I said, more recently I've yeah. been getting into different music, but I'd say. My generation, yeah. it's it's a lot of upcoming um, artists that are here for years and then suicide rock rap. I know, but you know, yeah, I listen. And and you know, you've got in country itself, you could have the the contemporary country. There's Carrie Underwood. There is Keith Urban. You got uh, you got more traditional. There's Brad Paisley. You got. Uh, and and I love this too. Here's here's another thing, and, and you, you, subtle. You might know it, you might not. You listen to Zach Brown, all right. Go back and listen to Dave Mason in the seventies. You go listen to We Just Disagree. Love that and, song. And and then you go, you know, and and there's you go. And Zach then there's Brown. a newer version. Yeah, that's exactly right. There's always been what country. We, what we call retro artists. Dwight Yoakam was a direct throwback to Buck Owens. Katie Lang was a direct throwback to uh, to Patsy Cline, and you still got that, you know. And you'll have the the one I I think is great is Marin Morris, 
You know, she brought, she, I grew up with that gospel. I'm a Ray Charles fanatic. That's, Ray Charles is a big example of it. And she brought in the, on, on the song, My Church, and she's got this big yeah. choir type thing. This can't blame nobody but me. It's the same yeah. thing. And then Chris Stapleton comes and goes, he comes out with uh, nobody to blame but me. I can't blame nobody but me before he was born. Uh, that's, but that's the way it works. But it, it's just, yeah. it's all relative and it runs in a circle too. You know, so you'll find things and you, you find yourself liking certain things and you don't really know why you just like it. But like you said, go back and listen to, to Hootie and you got Darius Rose the same. It's the same it's guy. Same, it's the same music. I yeah. Mean, it's, yeah. It's, it's, yeah. So that's the way it is. Right? That's the way it is. The uh, the problem with my generation is we we end up not listening to music because we like it. We right. listen to music because everybody else, our friends, that's right. Our friends like it. Yep. And I think I found myself not caring as much right. as time goes on. I was in the car the other day with my friends, and I played Bob Dylan, and they were like, "What the hell is this?" Right. And right. Like, it's Bob Dylan. What do you mean? Yeah. And uh, so I just like I just don't care anymore as right. much about what other people think. And I think that's a big thing about just getting older and getting more mature. Mm -hmm. And being an independent listener. And having exactly. great parents. Having great parents is that <laughs> deal. That's how you do. Yeah. No, that's exactly <laughs> right. You're 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 dead on it. That's exactly you start well, you you start listening to music. 14, 15 years old. And and it's with older people. You your your older people, uh siblings, brothers, parents, whatever, you kinda listen to their music. Then you split off, um, getting into 17, 18, you split off into your own thing, your peers, your people around you. Then when you get into your mid-20s, and you, are you 25? How old are you? No, I'm 21. Okay, 21. All right, that's about, about 21 to 25, you start really honing in on what you you care about. And and mm -hmm. you're right, the, the, yeah. the peers, you don't really care as much about what they do. But yeah. record companies will go to whatever block they can get. That age. Yeah, they, they, they'll get into that. If Taylor Swift is going to have every 14 to 18 year old. Taylor Swift did something. Uh, Taylor Swift and Garth are the two phenomenons that I've seen. Come yeah. Taylor Swift did that, and I met her at 15, and I was I had written with these three 14-year-olds and their mothers, and I was no way I was going to write with anybody 15. And um, she got the dynamic, the, the, the demographic at that time, with country music was 70% female, uh, aged uh, 21 to 45. She pushed that dynamic down to sure. 14 to 65 because all of the mothers of those kids related to her. Yeah. And then the grandmothers all related to her, you know? And so she did that. Garth did that with bringing country music with the big stage shows into the rock era, you know? He brought, he brought a rock show that you too would have been proud of that. Well, I've just been around a lot of things. And, and plus, the other thing that was, was cool for me is almost immediately on moving to town, I was accepted by the big-time writers. I started being invited into writing sessions with Grammy winners and with, with because they thought I literally, they thought I was going to be the, the well, new kid on the Well, when you walk. came to town, you had a pedigree. Uh, that's that right. Yeah. from earlier, yeah. and you won yeah. that competition in what, 1980? Well, I won that, but I started all over again because you start, different but genre. I had, yeah, different genre, but I had the experience and the work ethic from yeah. that. Yeah. And, and I knew things to expect and not to expect, so I kind of was able to navigate 
said, one thing about me, I don't have any bad deals that I've signed. I don't know. I know a guy in Birmingham, Alabama, who still pays money for a record deal he had in 75. Oh, my God. Because the contract just went on and on and on forever. And and so I know people with bad deals. I know people that have signed deals. Why do you think starving artists? They, they get into these deals that are so slanted against them. They have to be so enormously successful that, that everything is taken from them. You know, I mean, that was, again, we go back to the Beatles. That was, it was, they, they get into Paul McCartney. It's not until Paul McCartney starts talking to Michael Jackson, you know, and and he tells Michael Jackson, you ought to invest in publishing. Well, it was before he realized Michael Jackson's buying all his publishing, you know, and, and this is, you know, top money making songwriter in the world. And he's been burned by deals. It's just, sure. that's just kind of the nature of the beast. Mm-hmm. And, and so you, all you can do is try to know as much as you can, try to protect yourself as much as you can, and then hopefully make you live through it. You yeah. know? And that comes from parental mm-hmm. raising. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Yeah, man. Well, can you play well, this? Think about- when I'm thinking about getting on the business side of, of music so I can take all y'all's money. <laughs> that's true. That's exactly <laughs> right. Form your own company. That's one thing that you do. Form your own company. And, and what you're looking for is you're, you're, uh, everybody's looking for coattails. You're trying to hook in with people who are more established than you are. Write with mm-hmm. as many that you can. Get different types of songs. Okay, as an artist, we get very myopic. This is where we are as an artist, because that's where you got to be. But what you need to do is you need to have your antenna up and get different types of influences and different types of songs, because you never know where you're going to need that. And and the way the music business, the music business will change on you in a heartbeat. So you better have some options in how you how you do things. Mm -hmm. I just gave you. $5,000 $5,000 worth of advice. Now, I will give you my... Yeah. I can't, my no. But that's what you need to do. We'll get you guys hooked up offline. Yeah, we'll do it. We'll yeah, do it. definitely. And I think, too, Jacob, go to go to Mark's website. He's got a blog on there that I just went down this rabbit hole last night. And, <laughs> um, I I, I got to tell you, if you know anybody wanting to break into the business, direct them to that website and... Um, mm-hmm. Mark will give you the give you a chance to plug it here in a second, but there about. is some stuff that you know people need to learn about from from Mark's life and and maybe some mistakes he made along the way or some things yeah. he didn't know along the way right. that is free advice on that blog that I thought was phenomenal. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. great. But thank you. Well, I'll tell you one thing that I've been the beneficiary. I I have not made as many mistakes as a lot of my friends have. You know, I've seen a lot of my friends who came in who were astoundingly good get into one bad deal after another. You know, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm serious. You, when, when you get a guy delivering the pizza, delivering your pizza, and he was a number one writer just a few years before, and it's because he got into really, really bad deals. There you go. You know. Um, yeah, you, I mean, that was when behind the music was on MTV. That was the that was every story. It was just right. telling the story. Yeah, yeah. That's I mean, that's, bad advice, bad contracts, yeah. and that turned into infighting and the band breaking up and, and all that stuff. I, I I'm, I'm a big uh, fan of Big Head Todd and the Monsters, and they were an independent artist in, up in Colorado, released their own stuff. Yeah. They got a record deal, and I want to say they sold. I don't know, say half a million copies or, or whatever it is. I think it went, it may have gone gold, the Sister Sweetly album. And I remember reading an interview 
and they made less money with a major label than they did with their independent song. Do you know you know who Pat Green is? Yeah. Pat yeah, Green Texas Pat Green's a huge Texas artist. He came in and he gets this record deal. He was making six hundred grand a year in Texas. He came yeah, here. Yeah, that red dirt circuit. Yeah. yeah. He came here and his income went from six hundred grand a year to about one thirty-five, one forty-five. Huh. And so he was asked to re-up his deal, and he said, "I can't take the pay cut." Wow. And he went back to Texas, and yeah, it was, it was amazing. Well, not only that, but speaking of that artist, because he was one of the one of the few country guys I liked back then. Uh huh. His music changed when he got a big deal. Yeah, well, that'll happen. That's because the label you got influence. The label, well, the label will come in, and the very thing they sign you for is the very thing they start cha- change. Uh, they start changing, and when you're having to deal with focus groups, you're having to deal with consultants, you're having to deal with with all of this stuff. All of these people come with the deals, and your look changes. Your music changes, <laughs> you know. I mean, everything everything changes, and it's just due to the other influences that you have to deal with, and you got no choice because on your check that they sign to you, that's basically they're saying, "Here's your check. Here's what you're going to do." It's the you carrot. Know? That's the carrot. This is, and that's is that your is this your favorite song that you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Talk about that. Three thousand songs. So, so, I mean. <laughs> Which now, give, yeah, give, us, give everybody kind of the background of this song. Okay. Um, and in doing a search for you, this song does come up a lot. Yeah. So yeah. kind of talk about the background. Um, obviously, we kind of know it by the some of the prior conversation, but just give everybody kind of a quick overview of the song, where where your head was at when you were writing it, what kind of influenced it, and um, kind of take it from there. <laughs> Because I was writing with, I, I was, it was a, it's a teaching lesson. It was a teaching lesson. And uh, I was writing with a guy named Stephen J. Fisher, attorney at law. I always have to say that. He's, he was living in Malibu, California. Very nice house. He's, he's a very successful attorney out there. All he wanted to do, he had wanted to move to Nashville years before because his friend out there named Jeffrey Steele, had moved to Nashville and become this huge songwriter. So, and and Steve's one of these guys, and and these guys drive me crazy. Business people, attorneys, they only view things in dollars and cents. Everything is about dollars and cents, you know. And he was just talking about, you know, he didn't he didn't like dealing with people with the law, and he he just all the things. He's whining. He's whining about everything, you know. And and I'm just kind of sitting there, and and. I came up again while he's talking. I came up with everything that I thought he ought to know about songwriting. Most of the time, it's not fame and fortune. Most of the time, it's sweating it out with nobody in the audience. That was what was in my mind, literally playing for tables and chairs. But I didn't want it to be about that. I wanted it to be about perseverance. Because actually, the song is about perseverance. No matter what you do... If you love something, you do it no matter what. And and people that have approached me on that song, people who are salesmen, people who are truck drivers, people who are totally, completely different than any songwriting thing, get the same passion out of it. You know, mm-hmm. I've had guys that go, man, I've been there in, in some bar in Toledo, Ohio at two o'clock in the morning. I got to make sales calls in the morning, wonder why I'm even doing this. 
Because I actually love it. I actually love to do yeah. what I do. And that was what was in my mind. And so I, I just kind of came up with almost the opposite of everything he was talking about. Because uh, he was in a place that he didn't like where he was. And I was, I'm sitting here going, well, I get into these situations that I don't, I don't like. I don't like sitting there listening to people whine all the time, but I love helping people. Yeah. So we wrote the song. We wrote the song at 20 minutes. And, and it just, it popped up to me and I just, it all kind of popped up. You've heard that when it just kind of fell out, yeah. you know? And then I didn't play it for about five years. And I'm doing songwriter workshops all over. And I'm in Marshall, Texas. And a few days before I had started getting these congratulatory emails for a song that I had written. And I see, you talk about what's your favorite song. I don't have one. It's yeah. whatever other people like. I say, you got a lot of songs. Yeah, I got so. a lot of songs. And, and it used to be, but my signature song, Can't Blame Nobody But Me. And people would ask for that everywhere I went. Yeah. And and then I'd have thing for you. And people ask about that one everywhere. And, and then there would be old memories. And, you know, and it's people requesting. I get known for that. I got, I got a bunch of hits that have never been hits, you know? Yeah. So um, um, I had written a song called My Wish, and I had done it uh, on this CD that I had. And I'm in Marshall, Texas, and all these people are congratulating me on this song, My Wish. Your song got cut. Oh, great. And I, I didn't have a Rascal Flask cut. It was a song written by Jeffrey Steele that sounded sort of like mine. But you're talking about, you know, we wrote it for, we have different things. I wrote mine, kind of a songwriting kind of deal. He wrote his for his daughter getting married. And and so there were some similarities, but they were totally different songs. But I didn't want to sound just like I was just following the leader because there's a big hit on the radio. Well, here's my big hit on the right. radio. And so I switched to do Tables and Chairs. It was a song I'd written and forgotten about. One of the guys in that workshop shows up about two or three years later, comes to my house, and he's drunk. And, and he had been at that workshop, and he wanted me to play that song. And I had not really thought about it. So I played the song, and as I'm playing, I'm thinking, well, it's not too bad. You know, it's, it's still a ballad, but, you know. And he made me play it again. And he made me play it again. I played the song six times over and over again. And I thought, well, this is kind of interesting. So I started playing it, and I started ending my shows with it. And it started becoming one of the most requested songs. And it's got people, there are people all over the United States that do it. There's a Spanish translation of it. There's a German translation of it. One night, I, one one time uh, down, down here at one of the bars, I got sick and I couldn't make it. And so they filmed, uh, the, they did a, a, fo- a tele, you know, camera phone thing of the whole audience singing my song. Uh. You know, and and I I go and to this day it's it's just one of those songs that people request. So that's the background behind it. So nice. You want me to play it? Go for it. Another night has ended. Crowd is shuffled out. Two guys at the end of the bar throw their last buds down. The smoky haze is lifted. Work lights have come home. Now I'm packing up this old guitar and headed home alone. 
I do what I do for the love of it. Sure ain't for the bucks. Maybe some magical wandering if I look deep enough. What they see three hours a night is a tortured soul laid bare. Sometimes it feels like I'm playing for tables and chairs. She used to come here with me and hang on every line. Since they were all about her, I had a reason to rhyme. But she couldn't take the lifestyle of this gypsy on the move. You don't choose music, music chooses you. I do what I do for the love of it, sure ain't for the bucks. Maybe some magical wandering. If I look deep enough What they see three hours a night Is a tortured soul laid bare Sometimes it feels like I'm playing for tables and chairs Yeah, we do what we do for the love of it It sure ain't for the bucks But maybe some magical wandering if we all look deep enough What they see three hours a night Or tortured souls lay bare Sometimes it feels like We're playing for tables and chairs Sometimes it feels like We're playing for tables and chairs Tables and chairs. Nice. Hey, you, you don't choose the music, the music chooses you. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. That's uh, the, a true songwriter's song coming yeah. from a guy that's been there. Yeah, it is. And um, makes a good bumper sticker. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But we, we have bumper stickers here, people. Yeah. It's just, you know, you write reality. That's the thing. I, I, I just, everything that I do has got reality in it. And, and in songs, you want the people listening to be able to put themselves into the song. Everybody, uh, a friend of mine, Jimbo Henson, a mentor of mine, says, songwriter, songs are the mirror of the soul. People want to hear themselves in that song. Yeah. And that's why you can get too inward. And you got to always think about your audience, and that was the one thing when I when I wrote that everything that I did was written for audience. Yeah, yeah. well, it's that connection, yeah. right? Yeah. It's uh, you know somebody comes into a session or, or you know a set that you're playing, right. and they didn't think they were going to feel a certain way, yeah. and they leave there and they can't get it out of their head. And that's that's when you really did your job, right? I'm looking at your shirt, and it reminded me of something. John came up to me one night. I, I'd forgotten about this. This is happened about a year, maybe two years ago. And John came up. He goes, he goes, you don't choose music, music chooses you. And I said, <laughs> this, this and, is, and then he goes, wish I wrote that. And I said, well, I, he's talking about John Prine. John Prine. Yes. Yeah. yeah, John Prine, everybody. Uh, 
So, so Tony, here's a question. How did you come across Mark? Come across what? How did we meet? Oh, oh. And, and that was the other thing. The random nature of the world. We're standing in a line uh, to go at Third and Lindsley. My friend Scott Southworth, who talked about traditional artists, very yeah. traditional. He was playing, and the girl who runs that thing, I yeah. can't remember what her name is. You know her, don't you? The girl who runs the backstage Nashville thing. Oh, Dane and a Jill. Yeah. She had yeah. talked to me on... Um, Three occasions we had talked, we had emailed that she wanted me to do that show, and mm-hmm. I had not been down there in a while. And I, I really believe, I believe Nashville is missing something, and I wish they would do it. And and she, and and it's something that I want to support because I think it ought to be done. There should be songwriter shows in this town every day during the day because oh, we can all be like the Bluebird. I think so. And yeah. if you have those intimate songwriting things. That 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 is an apt is something that this town has that nobody else has, and and you could do it at the Third and Lindsley's at the locals. You could do that. It's absurd that we have this because we got so many tourists that come into town that don't just want to go to Lower Broadway. Well, and you can't get in, and you can't get into the Bluebird. Well, not only that, Mark. I, I think. We've always said that because that's why we have all of our friends go to that backstage at Third and Lindsay when right. they come to town because it's the middle of the day. Yeah. They, they can do that and still do something in the evening right. as opposed but, to but you have to jump to on it and choose what you do. You're, you're doubling your entertainment. Sure. But to get into it, you got to jump on it because it sells out. That's right. You, you know, when this yeah. town opens back up, you can't get in there. You got to buy a ticket three or four weeks in advance yeah. for that. Every show at the Bluebird sells out within five minutes of eight o'clock yeah. on Monday morning. Every single show. Yeah. And that's because of the Bluebird's reputation, because of the crowd. We used to, when we played there, we used to say, is anybody from out of town? Now it says, is there anybody from in town? Yeah. Because you can't, you can't get in there. You can't. But, the, the, you know, and Backstage National, Third and Lindsley does that. And and I think every club ought to do that during, ought to have day shows. Yeah. Well, and Douglas Corner. I mean, there's a classic. That's exactly right. Forever, and, you know, they don't do a whole lot. No. So, no, and they pissed me off. They're all friends of mine, and they yes. pissed me off. But you know, I, what you going to do? Again, I can't tell them tell them what to do. But there's opportunity right there that they ought to take advantage of. Downtown is a different side of the thing. You can't do uh, original material down there like you can like like because it's mostly a grazing crowd. Is they're going to go from bar to bar to bar because they want to see all of Nashville. A songwriting thing has to, you have to be able to go and pay attention. Now, now songwriters have got to write something worth listening to. And that's one of the things that I get, I get really bothered by these new people that come in. They're not, they're saying too many damn words saying about nothing. Most of the subjects they write about are the ACSS. Angry chick singer syndrome, or DDSS, depressed dude singer syndrome, and and uh, they they got to write something that is geared to audiences, yeah. and and so one of the reasons that some of these clubs can't do that or don't do that is because they they feel like the talent pool is limited of people that could hold an audience, you know. But I guarantee you I can put some people in that all the time. I think you can. Yeah. Well, Shoot, guys. Yeah, we'll I haven't taken. So, hey, hey, Mark, tell tell everybody where they can find out more about you. MarkAllenBarnett.com would be uh, 
M-A-R-C-A-L-A-N-B-A-R-N-E-T-T-E.com. Every Monday and Friday at 10 o'clock in the morning, I do an hour show called Mark Allen Mornings. And each show is a theme. All of the songs are built around the theme. I've had shows. It's a girl thing. All of the songs are written for and with and about women. I've had songs that are about sons, songs that are about relatives, songs that my in-laws might be outlaws. I've got, uh, I've got uh, one song was uh, was the Funny Bone, which are all humor songs. Uh, I've got uh, songs that were um, uh, Truth is Better Than Fiction, which are all about true, uh, real life things that happen. Uh, and uh, I just I do that every. Uh, Every Monday and Friday, ten o'clock on and Facebook, Facebook. On Facebook, Facebook, Facebook Live. Mark Allen Barnett. They can uh, Google is our friend. You just yeah. do M A R C A L A N B A R N E T T E, and I guarantee I'll pop up. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and my website is always the best place. But uh, you know, one of the things you, you'd ask for is about a, a booking. You know, future booking info. Nobody's got any future booking because nobody can tell what we're going to do when we're going to do it. You know? well, when you are doing it, when the things were live, yeah. where were you? I played about once every five weeks at either the Commodore. I'm the feature writer at the Commodore to the Maxwell House. I do Douglas Corner. I do the Bluebird about three times a year. Uh, and and then there have been things like, um, oh, God, down at Merchants, a friend of mine did a... Uh, did a songwriter showcase down there. There's that kind of stuff pops up all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, special, special private things and stuff like that. But, but, and those are, and those are ones that, that, that are, I don't want to say off the beaten path because you know, well, they are. Those, those are easy to find, but I'm going to tell you the one that blew me away was the Maxwell house. Hotel. Yeah. Yeah. It really is cool. You know, cause Lee Raskinay, who's the host, you look bad. He, he has a variety of people that play there and you'll go in. He has three rounds a night of four people at night. You'll have usually the earlier ones are, uh, the younger people. Then the middle one is usually hit writers or established writers. And incidentally, that's a, I meant to say that there the, in here, the designation, there are the hit writers, which have all the big hits. Then there's a designation called established writers. Those are the people that are known throughout the town. They're known within the industry. They have songs that probably you listen to them. They should be hits on the radio, but they just hadn't had that one essential break. I'm an established writer. And so they're, they're a different designation. Then you get new people and fly-by-night people and all that kind of stuff, too. But, um, well, they, did a, they used to do a blues jam there, and I heard probably one of the best harp players I've heard in my life. Who was it? Sheldon Zero. Oh, okay. Now, there's got Tim Gonzalez that's, that's really, really good. And, of course, uh, Jelly Roll Johnson. There's yeah. some really good players there. Yeah, Jelly Roll, man. He, well, I saw, I've seen him at a couple right? of times yeah. places, man. Yeah. It's, just, it's just incredible. And I think, you know, we're just trying to get – shed some light on, on some of this um, – some of this incredible things that's happening right. in this city outside of the outside of the tourist yeah. kind of corridor or, or where everybody everybody goes. I know I'm with you, man. I, I mean, that's why I wanted to do this show is because I think yeah. there's so many things that this town has to offer, and sometimes it doesn't even see it itself. Yeah, you know right. the the song the, the 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 town has been fighting for tourism dollars, cannibalizing itself. When there there are so many writers, we got plenty of writers, plenty of entertainers to go around. We got plenty of venues, and we got enough traffic coming into town. Yeah. But you right. have to just have find ways to focus it, and and we need these kind of things that spread the word. You know, we're our own worst enemy sometimes. You know, 
And uh, songwriters are their own worst enemies. Labels are their own worst enemies. Everybody gets caught up in their own little dilemma of the day and forget the overall picture, which provides some entertainment for people who are coming in looking for it. That's what's been the interesting thing with me and the Facebook deal. I didn't want to do the Facebook Live because so many other people who needed the income and so many other people who had lost venues, and I didn't really want to do that. Most everything that I do is not really about me. It's showing some things that other people can apply. In the, I, my every show that I do is a teaching lesson. Every well, single one. I went on to your Facebook and I've watched your shows, mm-hmm. and I'm like, how can I tip you? No, and you don't. Well, I, you don't really go into. I don't it, really. Yeah, the other yeah, guys do, yeah, and they do. So, and and I I didn't do that really because that's not like I said my my principal focus. Maybe if I wrote something with him and he takes that out and tells other people and that brings me business. Yeah. See, my deal is about a gig is fine, but it's going to be over. Yeah. Writing a song is really cool, but it's it's still you're writing one of many songs. Yeah. Teaching somebody something and watching that little light bulb go off. I, I love when people go, oh my God, I've heard a thousand times of how to do that, but I've never understood. Now you just did it. That's how you do it. You know, how do you put your life into an interesting framework? You know how everybody says, that ought to be a book. That ought to be. No, not always. Some right. people just got crappy lives. Right, right. And, and you can't just state the obvious that everybody else is doing. But if you can find that little niche of something that people go, I never even thought of it like yeah. that. You know? And that's what we're trying to do. So we're trying to deliver the same thing people heard a billion times before, but in a way that they went, oh, God, I didn't yeah. even think of it. That's that's how it works. The, the whole line of you don't choose music, music chooses that's you. That's what I was thinking. Is the one people come up and go, golly, man. <laughs> I don't know how I thought of it. It just popped out. <laughs> Somebody said, uh, we don't write songs, and God or a larger power writes them, and we just channel them to the paper, and that's probably pretty close. It just comes from different things, but uh, you got to have the experience to put it down into the proper context. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this. Knowing knowing now, mm-hmm. what you didn't know then, mm-hmm. that's, a, that's a song, right? It is. But, but, but knowing now what you didn't know then, what would you tell yourself in 1980-whatever? Write for other people. Don't say you're hanging on to something for yourself. I overlooked some things when people asked me to write with them, asked me to get involved with what they're doing, because I was very self-focused. It was all about me. Everything's about me. And and I had reason to be, because I had kind of conquered within the rock. The, the band that we had, 24 Karat, was a hell of a band. We were really, really good. Yeah. And we kind of conquered our little southeast. We went to Los Angeles. We won We won in a, in a, a very legitimate contest. Uh, and we beat out a Los Angeles band. And and so we, we did really, really well. It just music changed. And, and I had never, before I moved here, I never understood the concept of writing for somebody else. Right. You grow up in bands and you're self-contained. Every, it, all the stuff you write's for you. You don't even think about it. So I never really understood the whole thing about writing for other people. And when people approached me to write with them, I was writing stuff for me. It was that blues influence kind of stuff. People came to me. They wanted to write that kind of stuff for me. And so most of the stuff that I did was all in that narrow framework when I should have been looking to other things and writing for other people. Because in every song that you write, even if it's not for you, and I'm pointing at you, young man, even if you write some stuff that are not for you, that maybe somebody else can use, that's going to build your reputation. 
So get yourself, take your ego and move it over here. Write a bunch of songs, find the things that work for you, and then try to to pitch or try to, to work with other people. And with everybody that you meet, everybody that you write with, that multiplies your presence. If you wrote a song with, if you, if you took, and every songwriter ought to do this. I don't care what genre they're in. If they came into this town and, and if, if you can't write four songs a month, you're not working hard enough. And you ought to be writing those songs with other people because they're going to take them and they're going to go out and do them too. I've gotten cuts. I've gotten cuts from other people. Songs I would have never pitched. The, my co-writers loved it and pitched it. Sure. One of them's the, one of them is the Eyes of March thing. Yeah. You know, I mean, God, I grew up idolizing the Eyes of March. You remember that song? I'm the friendly stranger in the black sedan. Want you? And then, and then I grew up playing when we started playing Hold On Loosely, Rocking Into the Night. Yeah. 38 Special. Then Eye of the Tiger. Yeah. Well, that's Jim Petering. That's that he wrote all those songs, and right. that's who I wrote the Blue Storm Rising that is on the 55th anniversary of Ides of March. <laughs> and then you talk about Bob Seeger, you know, his backup singer, he's retired now, and his backup singer, Sean Murphy, she's got two of uh, two of my songs on her most recent CD, and uh, and they're on my CD, uh, uh, Thing for You and Can't Blame Nobody. And then I wrote one with her on her last CD. So all of that multiplies. Everybody you work with multiplies your presence. Right. It's your network. Your network. That's the network. That's right. And you get invited in. Imagine if you're trying to play a writer's night and you've written a couple of songs with some hit writers and they bring their people in to see you. That's where a career comes from. Right. That's good advice. I'm a genius. Mm-hmm. I am a genius. You heard it here, people. <laughs> you want the best piece of advice? The best $250 you'll ever spend in your life. Spend with me and I'll give you. I can, I can advance your knowledge three to five years in one day. And yeah, yeah, but Mark, but Mark, so I've got a, I've got a buddy that teaches guitar and, and he's had, and, and he's been fortunate to tour and he said he's had people buy lessons from him. Yes. Yeah. They sit and they just tell stories for 30 minutes or an hour. That's right. But that's where songs come it's from. It's the same type of thing. It's, yeah. it's, it's the same type of thing. Yeah. The stories are, you pick up so much, I think, from the stories that, um, you know, benefit you in, in other aspects of the business. Right. That, that's worth the, worth the fee. When you, were, when you were 18 years old, who was the biggest, the biggest person that you could think of? Music-wise? Yeah. Yeah, who's the biggest influence on you? Oh, geez, when I was 18. 16, to, let's just say 16 to 20 years old. Was there one, probably, one person? Probably Kiss. Okay. Kiss was the big band. I mean, that was probably my favorite band. Right. Had, um, and, I, and I think a lot of it is they just had a deep catalog I could go into. And, and that was kind of the yeah. the downturn of that band. Right. But I thought they were still creating great music. How would you like to have been able to sit around and talk to Gene Simmons or Paul Stanley for, for a couple of hours and just kind of hang out with them? Well, here's a little story. I, I did meet those guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And after talking to those two guys you mentioned, yeah. I, I didn't really care for them. Okay, all right. Now, that, all, right, all right. now, that's okay. That's a good point. All right. I had two guys that, that, were, that blew me away, that were kind of yeah. the influence. One was Steve Walsh from Kansas. Yeah. All right. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. The other was Dennis D. Young from Styx. Yeah. All right. I can guarantee, even to this day, I'd pay $500 to spend a few hours with them and just have them tell me some stories. 
You know? Yeah. And that's that's what some of this, when you're getting the lesson kind of thing, it's you're absorbing by osmosis the experience that that person had. I've learned more stuff writing with some hit writers had nothing to do with the song. I, I've had Richard Lee taught me about how to take a real-life situation and turn it into a hit song. He had a dog that was in that he loved, and it barked a lot. And one of his neighbors was complaining, and his neighbor threw a rock over the fence and hit the dog in the eye. And the dog had dark brown eyes, and one of them turned blue. And he wrote, don't it make my brown eyes blue? <laughs> Wow. And and so the experience of songwriter radar, uh, of being able to just listen to things and how people speak yeah. and how you internalize that and turn it into actual, that's worth something. Ron Muir was a guy who I wrote with before I moved up here and I spent money with him to sit down. Okay, show me this process. He was goes, in Birmingham? He was in Birmingham. He yeah. had lived here for 10 years. He had a couple of big cuts. And... I'd sit down and he showed me how to do internal rhymes. He showed me how to do, uh, I've got a, a, a line, I don't know how, I don't know why, I only know I. I would have never thought about those type of rhymes, yeah. internal rhymes, but he showed me how to do that. So when I hit the ground running here, I get a cut pretty quickly. The material that I wrote was opening doors left and right with me. I had some humor that I did in songs, which separated me from other people. And, and it opened tremendous doors just because I had been thinking in a term different than just the beats, the guitar, the production. All of that, how do you break all of that down? Just an acoustic guitar and a one-on-one -on -one relationship with your audience. Yeah. And and he showed me how to do that. I would have never thought about that. And I've always been a big and bold, uh, in, energetic artist. He brought a level of craft that I would have never done that had I not sat down with him. Sure. You know? And what, what sport did you play? I play baseball. Play baseball. Do you work with any specific coaches? Oh, yeah. Okay. Definitely. All right. Well, you know, I mean, there's, there's some guys that are just... When you're getting ready maybe to go to college or to go to pros, there are people, strength and conditioning coaches, you know, they're, they're agility coaches. There are people that work just with that part because that's what you're competing with. I do the same thing with songwriters and artists, sure. you know. I, I break down all the little things and show them and, through and listen to the things that they're doing. They'll play six, seven, ten songs, okay? Toss these. Yeah. Keep this, you know, because that's what's going to open your door. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's coaching. It's song coaching. That is, it is song coaching and performance writing coaching. Yeah, yeah. Annunciation, young man. Annunciation. I always remember that. It's yeah. a problem with with hip hop and, and rap. In order to have so many rhymes, they can get very sophomoric. And if you're doing so many words, it can bleed into your your brain. You ever heard anybody that's got so many things they're saying and you can't figure out what it is? Yeah. Yeah. Have you listened to any Eminem song? Exactly. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. That's what I'm But that is the artist. He's got that whole vibe that he's got. He's got mm -hmm. that, that tough kid, yeah. that, that Detroit kind of thing that he does. And so it works for him. But everybody can't do that. And particularly when you're listening to a bunch of people trying to do the same thing. You know, I'll hear these people. I, I had one guy that had so many words, I had to make him stop. 
because he just, he, I just couldn't, I couldn't absorb everything that he did. And he was, and then when you break the lyrics down, he wasn't saying anything. Yeah, he just throwing a bunch. It's, it's like taking a taking a, a a thesaurus, cutting up a bunch of words, throwing them in, and dumping them out. And that's what you write. Well, that's. I'm running on here, guys. I'm sorry. I don't mean to. No, not, no problem at all. Um, is there anything that we missed that uh, you thought we should talk about? You just said the, the one piece of advice, and I've given that, but my favorite line came from Billy Joel. And Billy Joel was asked, he says, Barbara Walters, doing an interview. She said, you're one of the most successful walking woes in the history of music. What advice would you give to the young people watching you? And he he went and he looked in the camera and he said, try very hard not to suck. That is something I have always tried to live by. No, man, I'm I'm excited about this. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And I'm glad to see you, Jake. Thanks for the time and thanks for sitting in. And and, uh, Tony, we need to get um, some of his stuff to kind of weave in and out. Yeah. Well, I think he Um, brought... A CD, so okay. I think I can. I was trying to send you the C. I was trying to send you some MP3s. Well, and that's the other thing. I can get them off your website. Yeah, you can. But you, you know how hard it is to send an MP3 file these days. Yeah, everything file too large. Right. It's like how yeah, small yeah. can I get these things down? And this is my, uh, I'm, I'm leaving that. And it's on my website, but this, you know, you can hang on to this and pass it along if you, but it's the stuff that I do, the teaching stuff that I do. Well, I, you know, I got your songs okay. that were on Google Play downloaded. Right. Yeah. Um, so, and I'll tell you that there's four, there's four that I, that I, that, that are my favorites okay. right oh, now. Great. Old Memories. So what yeah. are they, Tony? What, let's go through them. What are your favorites? Old Memories, The Hard Way, Red Hot Passion, mm-hmm. and Can't Blame Nobody. Yeah. Hard Way is the one wrote with with, uh, with uh, uh, Scott. The Hard Way is about the sons. It's the best father-son. Yeah. No, great songs. And, you know, you, you did one yesterday in your... Um, Next Big Thing. On your Facebook. Yeah. Uh, your one-man show. Yeah, the next good thing. Right? Yeah, what... Uh, it was It was a ballad in there. Yeah. And it's probably... I love the, the way we four, are. Four, third or fourth song in. Yeah. I love the way we are. Is, I is like that one. It was, it was written for a, a, one of my really good friends. Actually, one of the names that I pulled was a, a guy in, 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 uh, down in Gulf Shores, Alabama. And I wrote it for their wedding. Yeah. He had this beautiful wedding... A gorgeous wife, and he's very wealthy, and he passed on since then. But they have this wedding, and it's in his uh, his yard. It, very nice house, intercoastal waterway, huge boat, and it's all very catered, and everybody out there. Yeah. And he's doing the dance on that song. Yeah. And an uninvited guest shows up and decides that's the time he wanted to dance with the bride and make out with the bride. Oh my. And so this fight explodes while I'm playing the song. And this guy gets not they drag him off and we keep going with the song. Oh my Lord. And, and finish it. He comes back in and they keep pushing him out. Nobody knows who this guy is. Finally, not one, not two, but three Orange Beach, Alabama police cars show up to arrest him and haul him off. So I said... Orange Beach, Alabama, where you start out on Bridezilla and you end up on cops. 
You know, but that was the, that was uh, that song. Yeah, that's a million stories. You know, that's the thing when you've been around is just a lot of stories, and hopefully you turn them into songs that turn out well. You know. Well, I, I think this interview is great. I think that uh, we haven't even scratched the surface of Mark Allen Barnett. <laughs> Uh, that's the other interesting. Yeah, you do the Mark Allen Barnett series. I started going through the blogs. I'm like, this. There's so much error. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So we may we may have to have you back. I'd love to do it. I, you know, this is easy stuff. And and I, I gave you those uh, things that I've done. If you want to focus on any particular one, yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, the the four elements that I, I do are creation of the song, presentation of the song, networking, and business. And, you know, how do you create the songs? How do you look at the lyrics? How do you look at your grooves? How do you look at your vibes? Right. Uh, you know, a, a lot of times when it, it, you're writing, in particular, this is for you too, Jacob, you know, uh, when you're listening to other people, what kind of songs do they like? What kind of things do they like <laughs> to kind of get it away from you? It's like, again, like taking your, your, uh, your person, taking your ego out of it. Forcing yourself to write some things that you might not necessarily have already would do, and it'll give you a different dynamic. And I tell you what happens is you learn from every song you write, and and sure enough, you write something and you go, eh, I don't particularly care for that. Then you find yourself on down the road taking a piece of that and going, that actually would work on this, and that, and it makes it makes you have a wider variety of, of stuff because as an artist you got to hone down, as a writer you got to write out. You gotta you gotta absorb a lot of stuff. So creation of the songs like that. Perform if, if you're doing um, on um, presentation of the song. Mm-hmm. That's live and recorded. What makes the best? How do you go from demo yeah. to full? How do you do? Uh, yeah, how do you, a demo's you know pretty easy to do, I would guess. It, and then when you go, it to is and it isn't. You got it, it. Sometimes if you're pitching in the industry, some people are listening for certain things. Okay. And and if you pit, if you take a song in, say you okay, I'll give you an example. If you got a if you're trying to pitch a song to a guy, but you write it with a girl, you don't want the girl's voice on it because okay. the guy is going to go. That's a girl's voice. All right, yeah. so you got to have a guy's voice on it. If you want to do two versions of the song, you got to have a girl sing it and a guy sing it. You got to cover your you got to cover your bases, and so you have to find a common key between the two of them that they both can sing on. I've gotten duets cut because I did a girl version and a guy version, and then I intermixed the same. I had three girls that I wrote one song with. This is one of my favorite girl songs, and they all three were great. All three were beautiful. They all three had great voices. So we let them each do a pass on the song. And then we intercut the vocals. So you had trios. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So, you know. Hey, Tony. Love it. Yeah. Next time we play guitar together and you want to do a duet, you can be the girl. There you go. (laughs) Well, I'll wear wear my wig for that. (laughs) And how do you get away from doing that? You do it in third person. There you go. (laughs) Exactly. All right, man. Well, I've enjoyed it a lot, guys. Anything that I can do for you, let me know. uh, No, I appreciate it. I I hit you up on Facebook on your on your personal page. Yeah. Um, Let's simply stay in touch, man. And and honestly, when things get back to going again, and you put together that that soul band, I definitely want to come see it. (laughs) Yeah, I'm I'm a big fan of that. I I am too. The the problem is, you'd ask where you play. Here, you can't. (laughs) You get 11 I mean, people on stage. We got a five-piece of horn band. That would be well, awesome. Well, we've got two shows in Kentucky, but the first one is in June, and it's at, at a retirement community. Yeah, that's not So I don't think that's going to happen. The other one is in August, which is also in Kentucky, but it's only about two hours yeah, from I here. I saw that when yeah. 
Was it on your website? Yeah, yeah. Okay, it's it's on there. But so we'll see if that happens. It's 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 a really cool band, and I and we do one. We're about to do two of mine. One from the CD. Uh, that's the time I think of you. We're going to do that one. Okay, on there. Uh, but it's just it's so hard to keep anybody any. I mean, getting people paid is just nuts. Yeah. You know, you have to. Well, that's really the thing. You know, um, I, I don't know if you know a guy named John Bird. I do. Um, yeah. I went to see John. It's on Charlotte. It's uh, Betty's Bar and Grill. Okay. Yeah, I know where that is. Okay, so we went to see John. Nobody was, I mean, you have the locals there that are sitting around watching baseball on TV, drinking beer. Right. They're not paying attention to John Sam. Yeah. Um, Tables and chairs. I think we tipped him 20 bucks. Yeah. He took the 20 out of the jar and another 10 out of his pocket to pay, pay, the, to pay the steel player. And yeah. he got nothing. Yeah. Yeah, I know. We have a, a, a guy, Dan Item, who books the band who has about four different bands. And uh, and he does a lot of corporate stuff. And he's the, it's his band. That's why it's not my band. I, I would The main reason that I did it was because uh, I really like to We do Chicago, Blood, Sweat, and Tears. We do Eyes of March. Yeah, we do uh, Joe Cocker. I do one of the best Joe Cocker impressions you've ever seen. And uh, and so and then and Otis Redding, Tribal Tenderness. Yeah. And then uh, and then we do mine. We're gonna do a couple of mine. The whole reason I was doing it to begin with was to be able to morph into playing more of my stuff. But when you only play a couple of times a year, there's not you know, and you you're rehearsing, trying to get eleven schedules all to work together at the same time. Right. It's, it's kind of nuts. Right. Now the good, cool thing about when you're playing with those guys, particularly horn sections, everything's written for them. All the notes are written for them, so so they can do it. Mm-hmm. You just get up and do it. But but with a lot of bands, I used to play when I played. With my main bands when I was in town, you'd have to have three deep on every instrument. Three drummers, three guitar players, three keyboard players, three yeah. groups of backup somebody singers. Somebody might not be Because somebody could, yeah. And I was opening shows. I was doing shows for Waylon, uh, opening for Waylon Jennings. I was doing Dan Seals and Charlie Daniels. And you, you have a Confederate Railroad. Have to pull all these bands. And the last minute, you might not be able to get somebody, you know. And and so when you're a career, I, I was I did a show with Waylon Jennings and had some pub, some uh, producers that were coming out to to check me out. Had a keyboard player the day before. I can't make it. So I had to pull somebody else in wow. that never played with. Us. And you're like going, I don't know if this is going to work or not. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, oh well, what a life, huh? It's been a little while since we were you and I. I still see our friends who thought we were the perfect fit. They asked just what I'm finding. If it's still you I miss When they think I need to be reminded I just tell them this Every day when the sun comes up And every night when it goes back down Every time that I take a breath Every time I let it out Any time that I'm in it crowd All alone with a bar or two Any time there's a sight or sound That's the time I think of you Think of you would be enough To have those memories fade Everywhere I go, I can't find 